So do you think that we should do a little intro? Like last time we didn't do any kind yeah, of Yeah, I think we should do an intro, especially since we have a guest. Yeah. So that'll be awesome. Hey, you're our first guest. You're our first Yay. guest. Yay. <laughs> uh, on the second podcast with not even the same people as before. I know. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah. Who all was in the first one? Uh, it was us and then Sean also was there. Yeah, that's kind of like the main group, but it's going to vary a lot depending on who's available, and then we're going to do solo content too, so, assuming all goes well. Have you edited the first one at all? Um, a little bit. I haven't had much time though, just because I have a lot of homework right now, yeah. but this next week, I should have a lot more time, so I'm wanting to get all that up, and awesome. yeah, cut out the stuff we don't want in it, Yeah. post the big one, and then as well as sections. Nice. Um... Are you spe- specifically thinking of on YouTube, or are we going to try to make the other podcast accounts that are required for whatever that business entails? So, so like, like Facebook, getting it onto like uh, uh, the Apple and the right, Spotify like um, and Android ones. I think, I think we should just start with YouTube. Okay, and then once we've kind of, because like we're just trying to figure out our own shit and kinks yeah. right now, so. <laughs> Once we've got, like, a good rhythm and we're getting stuff up and we're a little more organized about it and have, like, something to stand on, then I think we'll uh, do the other stuff. That makes sense. Still in the practice runs right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it recording? It is, yeah. Oh, then here we are. Perfect. Motherfucker. We're on the mic! Where's the count? No, it has to be natural flow into it. All right, so the last time we had so many freaking like conversations that's beforehand that we I were know. like, damn it, that would have been nice. It would have been have. sweet to have the X Men conversation. Yeah, that like, was cool. Magneto and and like his motivations and versus Xavier and stuff like that and how interesting their dichotomies are. You know, they have one of the coolest like villain oh, yeah. hero relationships for sure. Dude, yeah. yeah, frenemies thing yeah. going on. I love that shit. Yeah. Yeah, those new ones with the young actors are the best. I fucking, I love the dynamics there. I think they did a pretty good job capturing it in the old ones, too. They do, but they, they definitely got... dive further into it since they got to do, like, the, how they met and that's the true. falling out. And... That's true. Yeah. It's just, yeah. like, the um, the actors that they got, like, Ian McKellen yeah. and so good. Uh, Sir Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Like, just, they, especially, uh, I can't remember which one it is, but the one where uh, Xavier, like, visits him in prison. I oh like yeah, like, playing chess sure. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we Hello, old friend. <laughs> <laughs> the iron out like his blood. Oh yeah, oh, Jesus. And then like makes a little disc that he can float on with yeah. little things that he just yeah. That was great. <laughs> Good times. Terrifying. Serious. You just do that anytime he wants. So. Wait, what? With the metal in their blood? Well, no, I just mean that like he has the ability to do that. Yeah. Like just like. Yeah, he just has like a block of it. He just like, and oh yeah, flying, and <laughs> I have bullets Jesus. that I can just get back all the time. Like, <laughs> yeah, he should really wear like armor. Can That's you imagine he, the utility of having yeah. just a suit of metal on all the time. That's a good point. I mean, the traditional Magneto more in the comic. Yeah. He's got the full breastplate. Exactly. Oh, really? Yeah. I know he's got the helmet, but I didn't know he yeah. had a breastplate. Yeah, usually, he's got a big red breastplate. That's awesome. Wears, it's like got the you know pectoral muscle. Yeah, reaching kind of thing. But going. don't forget the cape. <laughs> Gotta have, cape, cape, man. Man. <laughs> gotta have that cape, man. It was pretty sweet when he got the cape. Dude, if you were that powerful, you'd wear. A, I mean, you'd do whatever the fuck you want. Right? Exactly. You'd just be like, I'm gonna wear whatever the fuck I want. I'd make a metal cape and then I'd use it <laughs> yeah. to like cut people's heads there off. You and shit. There you go. <laughs> it's like a gold cape. So yeah, it could be like only a few atoms thick. <laughs> it could actually like flow in the wind. But gold still. isn't magnetic. Ah, oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. When did they do anything with that? 
That's a good question. Probably because it's expensive and there's other metals that, well, they, well, they, they just want to confuse yeah. people and be exactly. like, this metal isn't magnetic, you know, so. Yeah, why, you know, actually make it, I don't know, like, so that he wasn't more powerful. <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> in, in the comics, he can manipulate magnetic fields to the point where he can, like, bend light and crazy shit, I think. Yeah, I, I was watching the <laughs> that's the shit in the comics, and uh, I mean, it gets to like absurd oh, yeah. levels of yeah. power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, at, at that point, you could manipulate the motion of any atom because the, your magnetic field is strong enough. Like, does it broke electrons now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he just like knows all of the magnetic fields too somehow because he can sense all of them. You learn eventually, I'm sure. I'm just like, Focus Xavier on has to sit, yeah, exactly, no, that's what I mean, Xavier has to sit in this, like, amplified zone so he can, like, you know, go anywhere on the earth to be able to, like, read someone's mind. I'm pretty sure it's pretty chaotic to look at all the fucking magnetic fields that are happening all the time. He doesn't necessarily need to look at them, he's just making his own to do things. Yeah. And so he could kind of do it by trial and error, you know? Oh, real, be right. like, what if I made a field over there, and then... Well, everything flies that way. Hmm. Yes. I bet that's exactly how his thoughts go. Like a valley somewhere being like, maybe I could do this. <laughs> I want to see a contemplative Magneto. Yikes. I feel like he's always just trying to tear shit up all the time, but it's like, it's like Did you have had to do with Nazi Germany. I know, I was gonna say, go on. the Holocaust, go like, god damn. If anything's gonna scar you, like, yeah. there's some trauma there, right? That was, like, the beginning of two, I think, of, the, the, like, of when he's a kid. Ripped from his mother and yeah, and then yeah. kill his mom in front of him. Dude, that, that, was, that was the first one. That was in the first of the new ones. Actually. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. It, well, they re-showed it. They yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, because yeah, they, they did, I think, have him break it, like, Bending it, the and then they went into like, yeah, what's his face? Right, like, they had the actual aftermath of that. Where yeah. in the office and freaking out. Yeah, with the God, that was. Dude, when he crushes the helmets on the soldiers' heads after that, oh my god, <laughs> it just goes super crazy. Man. Starts, and they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, and that one dude's just laughing. What is that guy's name? Oh, Kevin Bacon. Yeah, yeah, but what's his character? Oh, Shaw. Shaw, yeah. yeah. Can I just say, how funny is it that a dude named Kevin Bacon kind of has a pig nose? <laughs> That's like, just not fair. Side <laughs> note, on the Kevin Bacon. <laughs> poor guy. Yeah, but he was in Footloose, so he's kind of going to win forever. <laughs> I mean, he seems to have won. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's doing pretty good, I he guess. He made it work for him. <laughs> His it. name is probably bigger than his like career in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. You ever heard of like the six degrees in Kevin Bacon and stuff? Or, like, is that a thing, really? Yeah, like <laughs> it's the idea that like you know everyone by six degrees right. of separation. So, oh. A lot of people refer to it as Kevin Bacon. I don't remember really? Was, Interesting. Was, yeah, it was conceptualized in the nineties with like because of a trailer yeah. where it was like Kevin Bacon knew this guy and this mm-hmm. guy. You know. That kind of reminds me. I mean, getting into more serious shit. This reminds me of uh, policies that NSA has about like who they're able to spy on. Because one of the things is, like, you can do two removes. So it's like, if you have someone you're interested in, two relations outside of that, you can spy on them, too. But then they passed a rule that made it, that includes interaction with companies. Uh. So as soon as, you know, person number two goes to Google, now you can spy on people who go to Google. Damn. Yeah, so that really opened that up. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, there's much separation there. Yeah. 
Um, we're gonna go with people who breathe. Uh, <laughs> Person A breathes, and breathers are suspicious. <laughs> oh man. Alright, well, since we have Chris as a guest, it would be sweet to talk about some AI stuff. You guys wanna do introductions? Yeah, let's get intro. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess you guess number one, Chris. Tell us a little bit about your background if you want. We haven't talked about our backgrounds yet, but we should probably do that too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm from Alabama originally. Grew up, lived there for twenty some odd years. Uh, had a well, before that, before I went to college, I was a big into fencing in high school. Nice. I was ranked two hundred fiftieth in the world, fiftieth in the country for my division, and Shit, champion dude. of the southeastern and the states. Um. See, in college, I studied finance primarily. That was my major was finance. I had a minor in psychology. All my electives were in economics. Uh, after school, I worked as a in the finance side of things. I worked as a financial advisor, controller, financial analyst. Uh, but I've done a lot of like random little jobs, usually somewhere in between business and tech. I have worked for like the public sector, so usually like I've done some contracting for local governments and stuff. So kind of hit like. Just about any kind of angle you can see about a yeah. company, small to large or whatever. Um, but usually, like I said, I'm, I'm sort of focused on the, or through my career, I focus more on like the business, the technology. Like he's, even as a financial analyst, I was working more to develop macros and stuff related to like making Excel better for the financial gotcha. people than I was. Gotcha. Um, lately, though, I've also done about five years of independent study since I graduated college. It's kind of broken up. That's where I've gotten most of my technical expertise. Um, places like Coursera, we can take tons of free online classes from you know, best colleges. Yeah. Uh, I have a data science certificate from uh, John Hopkins, where they have a really cool 10-course program on data science that you can do through Coursera. Um, oh, yeah. And a bunch of other certificates through that. Um, and yeah, lately in the past couple of years, two and a half, I've been really focused on AI safety uh, since Elon Musk started trying to raise the warning. And then... A lot of other yeah. people like Stephen Hawking and you know Sam Harris. A lot of alarm bells. Yeah. yeah. Um, John Tillian, like, of course, you know, uh, Ray Kurzweil has been talking about this for a long time, has some of the most, you know, documented, like, you know, the singularity documentary right. stuff where his views are typically more optimistic. There's a, there's a wide range there, but I've been trying to get a broader picture of AI safety mm -hmm. because it's it's not even just the idea of like, okay, this, the, AI, the safety of this particular AI program, but like the economic impact of AI right. safety. Like, what are we going to do when cars are automated? Yeah, how's it going to impact run? society as a whole? Right. And yeah. then in the long run, even if we get AI right from like the design safety standpoint, how do we also like deal with the political and economic ramifications of having well, like yeah. no need to work? And I mean, this is going to be like the second industrial revolution, essentially, in terms of how exactly. radical it is yeah, in changing and, relations. And even probably more monumental than the industrial Probably. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot. Yeah. Slightly terrifying. But I get it. So what worries you most about AI? Oh, well, actually, you know what? We should probably do introductions oh, about yeah, this. Yeah, Sorry. Can... <laughs> All okay. right. All right. So excited to get into it. But anyway, so I'm Dan. Um, I'm still going to school currently, but my major is in history and education, and I want to be a history professor. I'm about to get my BA and go on for my master's, so still chugging along. What about you, Drew? I'm Drew, and I just got my degree in psychology. Um, trying to figure out whether I want to go on the clinical side of things or more on the research side of things. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of just like free research and like philosophy, and I've done a lot of undergrads' classes in um, biochemistry and chemistry, like a more, more of the harder sciences, but 
I've really gotten into like more soft sciences as it's gone on, just because of the human application to it. Um, yeah. I think you both should talk about where you're from too. Okay, oh, that's fair. That's pretty brief. It's like yeah. you go to school. And yeah, like, I mean, introduce yourself. Like five yeah. minutes. <laughs> okay, let's see. Um, so me and Drew and Sean. Sean is currently not here. We all grew up in the same town, which is like this little remote mining town, or old historic mining town in Northern California called Nevada City. Um, and I grew up in like a little log cabin in the middle of nowhere. Uh, my dad was the local police sergeant at a department that had like eight people, so it was a really small town. Um, let's see. We all moved up here to Oregon, which has been awesome. And I originally wanted to be a police officer like my dad. Um, but that was kind of before I had done a lot of, like, serious um, introspection and, like, learning about the world and stuff. And um, I had kind of, like, you know, my existential questioning period where I decided I was doing that more just kind of following his footsteps than what was actually what I wanted to do. And I took a year off of work, which was very fortunate that I was able to do that. I know a lot of people don't get the opportunity. Um, but I just kind of... You know, followed my interests wherever they took me, and I had always loved history, but I didn't really take it seriously because I thought it was just kind of a hobby. But I found with all my free time, I mean, it was just nothing but history. I, I, these guys know I'm always talking about that shit. I mean, I started with ancient Greece. I would always relate everything to something about Athens and Sparta or the political dynamics in the city-states and all kinds of different things, and then. From there, it really spread. I got interested in Rome, and then... Um, Especially once I became more involved in politics during 2016, I got way more interested in more contemporary stuff. So like the Great Depression and the New Deal and the Enlightenment and kind of like uh, the emergence of capitalism out of feudalism and that whole process. Um, so my interests have really diverged in a lot of ways. But I mean, it all feels interconnected starting from a grounding in ancient history and uh I don't know. I love it. I eat it up. It's just, it's my favorite thing. Um, so now I'm going to be a professor eventually. Uh, I definitely want to teach history. Um, and yeah, that's what I'm working on. Awesome. Yeah, like I said, we're from like Grass Valley, Nevada City area. And um, I think like one of the biggest difference between like Sean and, and Dan and I maybe would be like our, our upbringing. So like Sean, He's not, yeah, like Dan said he's not here, but he grew up with, like, a bunch of siblings, like, seven, and uh, his dad was, like, a pretty wealthy guy. Um, they lived up in, like... A mansion, essentially. Uh, yeah. It used to it be, like, old an old bed and breakfast. Bed and breakfast, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but both Dan and Sean were, like, living up in kind of, like, the mountainous <laughs> area of, like, the town, whereas I was, like, pretty central in the town, um, and... All of my family, like my dad, my stepdad, and my mom are all in the court system. So my dad was like has been a lawyer forever. Um, my mom was a sec; she just retired, but was in being a secretary for a judge and various other like people within the court system for thirty years. And then my stepdad's now a commissioner. So I definitely had that like law influence i guess that more like a little bit more structured influence um in that way uh whereas i think it, it feels like dan's dad was a police officer but he was like a pretty hmm. 
pretty awesome police officer who didn't follow everything by the book, I guess, is, like, the best way to put it. Well, that. in a good way. I mean, that, that cuts yeah. both ways. Oh, I, yeah. He was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Sean's dad, um, he ran his own business. So, like, since he was a kid, like, put everything into it. Lived in his, like, first, his first building for his business. So, just until he could get enough money to, like, buy a house outside of it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that, like, most of my interests for a very long time were centered in, um, in more, like, in the harder sciences, uh, but as I got into college, I saw that, like, there was, I guess one of the biggest things that got me into, like, whole, all of philosophy was I had an idea of, like, uh, really wanting to help create a house that was, like, self-sustaining. And as I was, like, in researching that kind of stuff, I found that it's not because the technology's not there, but it's because the, like, the demand for it isn't there, which kind of got me into the reason why, like, okay, well, why is that a thing? And then you get into, like, all of the different... Because to me, it was so obvious that we needed it, if you think, like, like ecologically well, I mean, just objectively, if you, yeah, we do need it. <laughs> right. And, like, it would be, like, to me, I was like, this should be something that we're all, like, looking for since it is something that we all have. Like, we all live in a home, and if we can make that, like, give us as much of, like, the energy and, you know, resources that we need to live, why not do that? Um, and so, but going from that, I, like, kind of got plunged into... Just different ways people like look at the world, why everyone isn't ecologically minded, because there's like plenty of different like uh, religions or worldviews that people like will, you know, ground themselves in. And so that I just got really interested in that for a while and got that got me really into like people like uh, Carl Jung and uh, Joseph Campbell and stuff oh, yeah. like that. Um, so listened a lot to their stuff, which really got me into psychology, and that's ultimately like where I decided to get my degree, just because I find it so fascinating that there's like a lot of development, research and development that has gone on, but for some reason there seems to be a disconnect between being able to actually like implement everything that we've developed in a way that seems to be like everyone agrees is a good idea. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So. Yeah, so that's where I, that's, I guess, why I got planted into the psychology aspect of things. But I'm very much interested in, like, each ecological thinking and, like, the cool developments in science and stuff like that and how to how to apply that and help people, you know, like, to live better lives to, in that open philosophical realm. Nice. All right, I guess it's my turn. Um, so I grew up in Medford and... Uh, my dad was a chemistry teacher at the time, but in his past, he uh, got a degree in biology, worked for the Forest Service for a little while, managed a gun club, shot competitively, became a, pressed himself out as a machinist and was a gunsmith for a few years. So definitely a jack of all trades in a, in a lot of practical ways, at least. Uh, and my mother was a social worker working for the VA. So I got a good, uh, a good healthy dose of like psychology and social work from her. Uh, when I started talking to her more in high school, I didn't, we didn't necessarily talk about those things before that, but uh, I talked to her a lot about that during my high school years. And then uh, I got a pretty good uh, informal science education from my dad just from talking to him about a lot of things. Um, I also 
I've been shooting since I was like seven, so that's a huge part of my life. And uh, also just like building things and so like hands-on stuff. So when I went to college, uh, I did mechanical engineering and pre-med. The idea of going to medical school at some time probably, uh, but mechanical engineering is more like a fallback career. And uh, after graduating now, I'm kind of thinking that I want to get into robotics. So I'm thinking about going to get a master's in robotics now. And uh, my interests as of late have been a lot into programming. Uh, I've been learning a lot about Python in the recent past, and I've uh, been enjoying that a lot. I like the critical thinking that that affords me. And I also have been studying a lot of history through, uh, mostly through Dan Carlin and a few other podcasts. Oh, yeah. And uh, my most studied era right now has been World War One and World War Two, but uh, also a little bit into the um, Angus Khan and the Mongols, and then some into like the Roman Empire, and a few other little specific parts of history, but I haven't studied nearly as much as uh, as Dan to be more exhaustive about, and not that anyone can actually be exhaustive about no, it anymore, but, No, no. Uh, the I more you learn, the more you're just like, I don't know shit, it's so much. Yeah, unfortunately, the more I learn about World War II, the more confused I get about different parts of it, it seems, yeah. you know, just like, wait, there was an African front? Fuck. <laughs> and then like oh shit now I gotta learn about Japanese imperialism if I want to understand the Pacific front and so but anyway um, so yeah as far as like informal study those are probably where uh, I learned or I've spent most of my interests the past couple months at least or maybe the past year I would say um, so yeah that's kind of where I'm coming from I guess so I think that's probably oh, yeah. a good enough introduction. <laughs> yeah, I think that's solid. <laughs> Other things could be gleaned later on. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> barely tip of the iceberg there. But yeah, whatever. So now I think we can go ahead and go into AI safety. And All right. I heard that you had a question. Already. Yeah, I mean, I guess a good place to start is just like, what <laughs> what worries you the most as someone who definitely spends a lot of time researching this stuff? <clears throat> so it's a uh, there's an interesting thing with the worry aspect, right? Because it's like there's the percentage of likelihood that this event's going to impact us. Right. And there's the actual devastation the event could cause, right? Yeah. There's a high percentage chance that self-driving cars, right, extremely high, is yeah. going to be an impact we're going to have to deal with. But compared to some of the other issues in AI safety, it has a lower devastation. So like, talking about job loss, essentially. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. The disruption of the economy. Yeah. Um, but when we look at, like, the actual like AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, meaning a human level or greater intelligence, right? The the threat that that could eliminate the entire human population, which is called an existential threat, right? You guys ever yes, kind of definitely. So, you know stuff that's monitored by like the Future of Humanity Institute and the Future of Life Institute and stuff like that, the Center for Existential Risk and places. Uh, but yeah, AI safety. Um, that's the first part we usually look at because like obviously any existential risk even if it's point zero 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 one percent you know, looking at yeah, yeah it's yeah. the end of everything right yeah. so it's yeah. the worst possible take thing. that seriously yeah. <laughs> so and the problem is too we really can't put a percentage on what the you know the chance is that we can there's so many safety. unknowns right yeah right. It's, just, it's really just a big question mark as to even the timeline to develop it much less the timeline to develop it safely yeah. so that that's the i would say the the biggest fundamental concern i have um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it'll have the biggest negative impact, obviously. Like, it, the disruption to the economy is just going to be so massive, and, like, we are 100% going to have to, like, if we don't get destroyed, yeah. we 100% have to deal with the oh, economic yeah. the disruption. And 
you know, a lot of the people in AI safety right now are typically more focused on the technical aspect. Right. And that's why we don't really have a lot of this conversation bubbling up yet. I mean, even with like self-driving cars, it's kind of starting to get there, but there's still like this pushback because we're like, nah, it's still far away. We don't have to worry about that. It's going to come pretty soon. Oh, it's yeah. It's not that I far mean, off. We're in a few years from having, I mean, there's cars already that are better drivers than humans. Yeah. You know, it's just <laughs> the getting it deployed and getting the legal aspects of it taken care of first, right? I think uh, it's interesting the way, so like the, the way you're framing it now is, is nice because even if it, we don't get an AGI, we're still going to have to deal with the impact impacts of AI as that keeps becoming better and better. And so like even if we don't have a you know flip the switch and the entire labor market is fucked moment, we're going to have little versions of that as we keep going regardless. Which if anything, I think that could actually be worse for political instability. I mean the political situation is pretty sketchy right now as it is. There's a lot of you know uptick and discontent. So you're just adding boom, 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 boom. Shit's gonna start moving. Yeah, and I really like the way that Sam Harris was putting it in his TED talk about AI safety, um, where he was talking about like if we have any, if we assume any amount of technological improvement at all, then we will eventually get to an AGI, and yeah, and so sure. if that's essentially an eventuality, unless we our you know race gets destroyed somehow, then it doesn't make any sense to put our heads in the sand and be like, well, we'll deal with it later. Because no. it's going to happen. So, and we're, we're getting closer. So, I mean, that should be like at the forefront of discussion is what does an AGI world look like? Exactly. Because yeah. that's where we're going. Right. It's so weird that that's happening almost on a parallel timetable to kind of like um, the, the more dangerous impacts of climate change unfolding. Like that's going to be over the next century. Right. AI is going to be over the next century. And both these things are things where we're just kind of putting it in the future where we don't have to think about it. And it, yeah, totally. And then yeah. when you think about the pairing of those two different things impacting society, oh, it's going to be an interesting era. Like you were mentioning the, the economic and political instability, and like how potentially you know having the more stilted development can yeah. make it worse. Because I mean, the big concern is the way that like wealth distributed. Because AI just makes it so easy for a single person to just generate massive amounts of wealth, and they don't even need workers. Yeah. yeah. So, like, that's the problem is that, like, you know, do people just start snatching up one industry at a time and you yeah. know, get more and more billionaires and yeah. trillionaires? And, and really, at that point, the trillionaires or billionaires can just hire all the AI experts, right? Yeah. And then get them yeah. to keep building them stuff. So, it's, yeah. It's dangerous. <laughs> I think the difficulty also lies both in, like, the climate change and as well as the AI is, like, I think a lot of people don't feel like they have nearly enough information or effect on either of those matters to even like talk about them so like i get that like you know same would like everyone to be discussing those kind of things but it's like i think the way that our society is structured right now is seems to be that people will focus more on like what they have to do in order to like take care of their families or take care of like the day-to-day kind of stuff and they're hoping that there will be some underlying structure that will like allow them to you know take care of the earth or like be able to talk about like ai i don't even know if that's even on the radar for most people you know what i mean like they don't even like they're they're just like well this the richest people will just you know be able (laughs) to do anything at that point which they kind of already do 
effectively in my life. You know, right. well, we don't really have any institutional method to really educate and discuss these things anymore. Yeah. I mean, the corporate media is essentially just geared towards viewership and entertainment exactly. and sensationalism. Yeah. And I mean, it's not talking about any serious issues, whether it's climate change or inequality or AI. I mean, it's just a circus and, you know, people aren't being educated. And I mean, the economic situation, you know, is pretty tenuous already. People are having to work as hard as they can just to get by. Exactly. They don't have time to deep dive into, you know, heavy intellectual issues about the future. Or spend, like, a whole weekend going to some sort of rally or something like that. And I mean, we have a political climate where, you know, most politicians are like the media, wholly owned subsidiaries of different moneyed interests. So it's not like, I mean, you have some politicians starting to discuss these things, but we don't have, like, a vibrant political culture of discourse. Well, isn't, I think, isn't there difficulty in just, like, the, I think, the most natural intuition coming from AI just being that it's, like, I have no idea anything about AI unless I have any computer science background whatsoever. And then I'm, so like, how am I supposed to control that whatsoever? Okay, so if I don't have control over it, who does? Smart, rich people. And then you're just like, okay, and then what does AI do? Fix any problem? That's probably how like most people think about it. Okay, well, they're going to be able to make the world however they would, like want to do it. So it seems like such like an intuition that leads people in the like there's literally nothing i can do about it you know yeah Yeah. and i think that intuition holds true with the the climate science too where people you know in large part don't understand climate science from like a ground up perspective which is understandable because it's extremely complex but then you have to essentially take it on faith from people that you trust quote unquote that that's a real thing right now so somebody somewhere along the lines you have to have trust in scientists and the scientific method and the scientific community as a whole or in you know ai experts and then you have to like listen to what they think you should do and that's a lot of that's a lot of faith on one hand and it's a lot of just you know I don't know, it's not like hand-waving, because it is more just like the faith aspect that those people know what they're talking about, but then you just, I feel like most people are like, well, I don't understand this, and it's very, like, otherworldly to me, so I'm going to assume that the people at, you know, the powers that be have got it. And yeah. They, you know, like, that's, I feel like a lot well, of Well, and it's, it's not even happening <clears throat> in a neutral environment. I mean, it'd exactly. be one thing that's if you have that information present, and it's like, okay, are people going to be able to learn about this stuff and do right. something about it? But, I mean, you have, you know, political and economic interests spending huge amounts of money to actively discourage people to come to conclusions that will disrupt, you know, those profits. I mean, we know oil companies knew about climate change, what, like 50, 60 years ago, and immediately began, you know, propaganda efforts to try and get people to not realize it or to yeah. do anything about it. And, and that actually could be more insidious than people think, too, by sowing seeds of doubt in the scientific community. Yeah, they have. You know, like, like, that's a whole political movement now. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's been, that it's happened. Like, I mean, for people that are scientifically inclined, when they look at articles or they look at, uh, you know, any any kind of research that has been done that denies climate science, like, there's holes that you can poke in it endlessly. Yeah. And all the, you know, renowned scientists do that. But from a layman perspective, it could seem more like there's not a consensus. Yeah. And there's, like, very loud voices from, like, three people that yeah. are like, climate, climate change isn't real, you know. And then other, other people are like, no, you're retarded. And then from a layman perspective, you might see that as, like, oh, nobody knows. Like, it's not yeah. an agreement. And so I think that that type of propaganda, like, it's hard to understand 
for me at least, how much of an effect that could have. I think it's pretty pervasive. I feel like it could be too. Certainly know? in the United States. I yeah. mean, apparently climate denial is way worse here than most countries. <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy. Because, because the right wing, I mean, religious yeah. right in particular, has yes. driven the narrative yes. against that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the, the things with AI safety too is that unfortunately the narrative of AI safety isn't even like at the public level yet because most people don't even believe that AGI is possible. Right? Mm. So in the computer yeah. science community, Everybody, you know, that knows computer science knows AGI is possible. So, you know, then there's a debate there between AI safety. Like, yeah. some, of, some of them essentially say, like, oh, we got this, don't worry. And then the other ones are like, nobody no, no, can no. possibly have this. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. So, but when we get to the actual public level, we're still at the point, the conversation's really still at the point of, is this even possible? I mean, would Jesus even let us do that? See, there's, there's a big religious part of that, too. The yeah. idea that we could create something as sophisticated as humans right. are kind of smacks in the face of this whole the divinity of man and all that so (laughs) yeah yeah i had a i had experience like that talking to uh to my grandfather-in-law who's he's a really smart guy but he's i mean he's like an old you know jewish guy and when i talked about ai he was like no no no, we can't make anything as smart as humans right god made us we can't be that way and i was like okay man (laughs) (laughs) you say so Yeah, that's definitely interesting. Uh, you know, if we look at a lot of religions, they have a history of ignoring facts until they literally can't. Anymore. Yeah. And, well, you know, it seems like they've kept up that tradition, or at least a lot of them have. Yeah. That's very... This is kind of a parallel to that. I don't know if religion played a part in it, but um, I've been thinking about it because we're talking about, like, denial of science. Uh, Chris and I watched a Philip DeFranco video yesterday about where he mentioned... That North Carolina had, I think it was, was it North Carolina that had those projections of the sea level rise and ignored it. So the scientists came out. I, I want to say I don't I don't remember the exact day, but they came out several years ago, and I'll look it up in a moment. And they said that the sea level was going to rise 39 inches in the foreseeable future, and that they mm-hmm. needed to do things about that. Right. And the government, like you know, looked at it and said that it would cost billions of dollars to like. Uh, essentially, you know, make new flooding zones yeah. and like, you know, fix up roads and do whatever is needed to sort of, you know, mitigate the problems that are going to come with that. And they basically decided that it was going to cost too much. And then they they essentially said that it wasn't going to happen. They just they made legislation that basically said that they could not use the scientific pro- projections and that they were, were only allowed to use like historical data to predict <laughs> the future and <laughs> never use any policy based on the idea that the sea level is going to Yeah, I, I look I yeah, I read about that too. And it's it's been really troubling because I mean the military is doing all kinds of, you know, tests on this shit and saying like, "Hey, we're going to have to move these bases." <laughs> you know, all this different shit and Congress is like, "Nope, pretend it's not real." Like <laughs> It's crazy. It yeah, really it's... is. I mean, the, just the coasts in general, every coast. Oh, it's going to be ravaged. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there's so much on the coast, too. Like, the bulk, well, of, the bulk of human civilization yeah. is on the coast. So, just yeah. before you go in, uh, no. from the Washington Post, that report came out in 2010, and it, it uh, estimated a 39-inch sea level rise by 2100. And uh, from the Philip DeFranco video, or, he said that uh, it's actually risen an inch per year. Yeah. in the in the recent past like since that happened which well that's is actually the, way faster that's than the scariest thing is if you keep up on climate science every new thing that comes out is saying this is happening faster right. than our worst case scenarios yeah. were yeah 
This isn't, and everyone's like, oh, no, you're overblowing it. And, you know, the science is, you know, <laughs> they're going overboard. And it's like, actually, we were way below what it's actually going to be. Like, we, <laughs> yeah, so. We wish that was right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's funny, too, because some people will, uh, I, I feel like some people use that narrative to sort of discount the narrative as a whole. They're like, yeah. oh, well, they said they were wrong, so, like, do they really know anything anyway? It's like, and it's like, okay, they're their, wrong predi their predictions the were very direction. conservative. <laughs> that doesn't mean they're wrong. Like, they're like, they were like, we need to do something, I think, about this time. And then, yeah, it's not that we need to do anything less. We'd need to do it quicker. Like, yeah, right. still change. My Well, that's, I guess the bummer part for me, too, is that economically... Like, that seems so awesome. Like, it's going to cost billions of dollars, sure, but it's like, okay, it's all infrastructure-based. You're you're going to actually, like, improve cities because now you can actually start funneling in, like, money to, like, reestablish, like, different, like, zoning and stuff like that. Like, put minds to developing our cities and developing, like, the land oh, that we work on and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but there is a significant loss. Are you familiar with the broken window fallacy? Mm. So basically the idea is that it's sort of how like people get the whole like war is good for the economy thing, right? Uh -huh. so the idea is it's good like, for the war industry. Right? <laughs> the idea is like you have a baker's shop, right? Yeah. Some kid throws a rock and breaks his window, yeah. right? Well, the good thing about that is, is now that the window repair company gets to come have a job, right? Yeah. Like the, the baker pays him, you know, hundred bucks to totally. fix the window. The problem with that is that if the kid hadn't broken the window... The, kid, the guy might have went and bought a suit for $100, Yeah, I, tailor a job is right. creating something. That's but true. that's also, I think, important to, like, look at what it is that we are currently spending our money on. So, like, and being able I mean, to I actually evaluate. infrastructure a lot. Exactly. Well, it's also, are we spending money that we actually have, or is this going to be deficit spending in order to spur, you know, investment and production? Because, right. I mean, the New Deal, we essentially just whipped money out of thin air and said, okay... We're going to invest all this shit in the country and just kind of, like, have faith that it's going to spur <laughs> enough development that it'll pay itself out in the long run. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's that whole concept, too. Because, right. I mean, with just, like, a baker, it's like, he has money, and money that he's spending on this, he could have spent on something else. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if it's, like, this big government initiative, it was essentially... And it's not, it's like there's going to be a fucking... Cause inflation, though. You, you yes. You money, there's yeah. ramifications yeah. to it. And, and before you get yeah. into that, I wanted to say also that uh, the... Like, for instance, the Hurricane Florence that's going to hit uh, North Carolina, it, it was downgraded to a Cat 2 now, but they're still expecting flooding in North Carolina of, like, upwards of 8 to 9 feet, I believe. Jesus. And so the estimated cost before they, they got downgraded was something like, I want to say $170 billion for rebuilding all the homes that were going to get destroyed. So, like, yes, obviously that's hindsight's twenty twenty, yeah. but it's one of those things where we have all these predictions that there's going to be a huge amount of destruction, and we can do some, you know, preemptive spending that, yeah, will probably hurt in the short term, but, like, if we don't, what are the consequences, yeah. you know? Yeah. And in, in this case, it is almost like the broken window fallacy where it's like, okay, yeah, a, you know, a bunch of homes are going to get destroyed, and then the home industry is going to go berserk for a little while, but... Yeah. Is it worth the destruction? And then one other thing, I, I don't want to ramble too much about this, but one other thing that I think is interesting is thinking about this from an economic perspective is interesting and it's important, but I also like to think of it from sort of like a world resource perspective. And right. it's like all that destruction is something that 
we can't really get back ostensibly. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's going to be a lot of resources Finite that resources essentially just won't yeah. get recouped. And there's going to be an, an immense amount of energy that goes into building homes that will just be, we well, could have that, done other things. That's right? another huge thing we got to talk about is, I mean, our whole global civilization is built on the premise of infinite growth. Yeah. Know? So that's, I mean, that's an even deeper root to the problem. I mean, the fact that our, somehow our economic system is divorced from the idea that we are in a biosphere with limited resources is like, that's like, I can't even... I don't well, an economy based on the idea of sustainability would yeah. be radically different than anything totally. we're familiar with. Well, it's just even, I mean, it, I guess, again, we're getting into, like, the more, like, science aspect of it, but it's like, yeah, to, for anyone to deny that we do have limited resources, I think, like, scientifically, it's just like... I don't know if that can even, if anyone can even say that that's a like, really okay thing. I like the way Elon Musk framed it a little bit, because he's talking about relative to, like, the electrical industry and stuff, and how people are using fossil fuels are essentially being subsidized. People are always yeah. angry that electric, yeah. you know, electrical cars and stuff get subsidized, but when you're pulling limited resources out of the ground and using up the CO2 yeah, subsidized in terms of the cost to the future. Exactly. Were you yeah. watching that uh, that Joe Rogan interview yeah. he did? That yeah. was so good. It was really good. Yeah. The one thing that I did want to say about like how I don't think that this is like the broken window fallacy is it's not that there is a kid who's going to run and break open the door. It's literally like there is a hailstorm that comes <laughs> every few years and we're saying it's going to happen again and then... It's and then we're just not going to do anything about it. We're going to pretend like yeah, the hailstorm is. I mean, that's coming, what happened here. You know? Oh yeah, we we want to do the infrastructure first so that it prevents the damage. There's we don't want to have to rebuild. We want to like stop it from occurring. So like, I, it's not like and it, like I just think it's it's interesting that like the kid isn't going to do it or not do it. It's like we're pretty sure it's going to happen. It's yes, just when it's going to sure. happen. I think you, you guys know. agree on this for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, and I mean. You know, I, I think there's a strong silver lining. You know, there could be a lot of jobs made if we did, like, a big jobs program to change over the infrastructure, you know, and really just kind of modernize the country. I mean, it's a huge opportunity, even though there's going to be massive costs. And, I mean, quite frankly, if we're thinking in terms of, like, the risk of inflation, I mean, better to do it now while we still have the dollar as the reserve currency of the world, yeah. which is the biggest defense against that of any country you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of countries working to make us lose that. So we're going to be in a way worse position in the future. So we might as well do it now. Yeah. I just think that one of the coolest things that we probably could do as, like, a nation is accept that there is, like, this kind of, like, the ecosystem-based biosphere thing that's occurring. Like, at least I, a, uh, like... Um, system that's happening that we have to work within because that I think in and of itself like if we can agree on that and I don't even know if that's like a religious thing at all like a spiritual aspect to it. I think it can come from that yeah. I think it's very much scientifically like based. we should certainly seek spirituality as an ally well it's, in that fight because I, mean, sure. I mean the oldest spiritualities universally across human history all had some kind of environmental right. sacredness that they grounded themselves in and their idea as part of the ecosystem and the necessity of sustainability and stuff like that. And the only reason why I would like, like why it comes to me in that kind of way, like why I even brought up the religion thing is because it seems to be future predicting. And it seems to be that right now people for some, like the scientific community, they're like, yeah, it's going to happen. Right. But then there's so many people who are not in the scientific community. We need to say, move it on the cultural I don't level. know. Yeah. 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 And that's why I like to, yeah, it is, 
it is cultural, I think, that we need to be able to, like, as a country, say that it's occurring. Because well, we're the so only one who didn't sign. I know. Only well, we country. pulled out of it. We pulled out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like... It's because we have a very special president. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, his core base is the evangelical, fundamentalist Christian right. movement. Which well, is great fact, because he's not even really a Christian. Well, no, but I mean, you see how they justify it. You know, they'll say shit right, like, you know, ridiculous. you know, God works through an imperfect instrument and all this shit. <laughs> and it's... Have you seen the Pew results where like thirty percent of fundamental fundamentalist Christians believe he's the Antichrist or voted for him anyway? No, no, I didn't see <laughs> that. Because they wanted to bring about the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, my favorite journalist Chris Hedges did some deep undercover work with the Christian fundamentalist community. And his conclusions were that so many of these people, you know, they come from a place of, you know, these broken cities, you know, in the heartland and just places of absolute despair and hopelessness. And they get sucked into these like cult like, you know, societies and they really do hate the world that did this to them. That's one of like the core views in in this journalist's perspective. Um and that the reason there's kind of like this fetishization of the apocalypse is because they want revenge on a world that abandoned them. Depends on the sex. So I was for raised, sure. I was raised as a Christian fundamentalist, unfortunately. Oh. So was my girlfriend, um, actually. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's rough shit. Yeah, yeah it really. Is. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on merging. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> uh, I still have a lot of baggage from it. Yeah, just, you always just, will. Yeah, it's crazy. Some of the stuff that they like try to brainwash you with yeah. as a child. Right. See, that's a whole different thing. It's like someone who's converted to it versus someone yeah, who's exactly. raised within it. Yeah. Being told when you're like six years old, oh, Satan's going to come get you at night if you don't be good. Like, that's yeah. just some like fucked up shit for a little kid to be like thinking. Yeah. <laughs> seriously. It makes it hard to sleep. No, seriously. I mean, my girlfriend, she's always telling me how it's like, I mean, she's come out of it too and she largely doesn't believe any of this stuff, but it's still left all these imprints on her. Right? Right. Even though she she ostensibly and intellectually doesn't believe it anymore. There's still that fear of like hell yeah. and damnation exactly. and all of these vivid archetypical like sin, concepts. Like things that we've had yeah. in our head is sin that yeah. we can logically realize aren't sin. Like yeah, but there's still that internalization of the guilt exactly. and the shame yeah. and the judgment. Yeah. And... Well, and I think that's one of the. So, coming from a psychological standpoint, it's like those. There's like the content and the pattern, like you and I were talking about the other day. It's just like there's. The content would be like what is sin like what are the things that are sin and then the like pattern would be like the feelings and everything you get when you sin so it's like the i guess this would be kind of like a jordan peterson approach to it but it's like there's like that self-criticism that's that's like infused in the, in the sin where yeah your, your premise is that there's like this almighty being that knows what's right and then you did something that was against that thing that was right and now you're gonna feel bad about it or you're gonna i mean it goes to the point where it's not even feel bad it's be so terrified you can't sleep kind of idea yeah so like that would obviously no psychologist ever would be recommend that you know no no one would say that that's a good thing i don't think um and so like but being able to try to remove the like negative aspects of that of the sin but then also keep this idea that there might be some things like i feel like moral grounding itself is rooted in the fact that there might be some things that sh that should make you feel bad right. not in the way where you're yeah hurting sure. yourself or yeah. or being hurt see but... i i think even though i don't come from a religious background i do a lot of that shit mm -hmm. like so like i have a very um one of my biggest things internally psychologically is that i'm constantly 
hardcore judging and criticizing myself for any time I'm, like, violating my own principles. Mm. So at least my principles can change, as opposed to, like, when you're in a religious setting where they're given to you. But it's still, I mean, it's still very self-abusing to kind of be that hardcore about it. Well, and I wonder, I mean... Again, psychologically, that that's a huge one for like behavior behavior control. It's like that is kind of like negative. The that would be like negative punishment, I guess. At that point, you are you are getting something, and it could be positive. It depends on how you like what goal you're looking for. But it's like you've done something, and you have a negative reaction to it. So don't do that thing anymore, right? And I like I tend to just do it and just keep shitting on myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds healthy. Yeah, sounds that really healthy. When I become a psychologist, come see me. <laughs> I think you were a little too biased yeah, for no, me. No, like, just, just a little bit. No, but that's uh, best friend of more than a decade. <laughs> but I think I mean, well, I think so the psychology community also definitely believes more in positive reinforcement. Yeah, so true. really, yeah. like, yeah, which is funny because it's like. I know that in terms of, like, you know, how you treat your dog. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but me, I'm going to be a freaking tyrant. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's definitely interesting trying to find that balance within, you know, personal motivation. Yeah. Sense. Like, I have a problem with that as well, where, like, if I'm not hard enough on myself in a negative manner, then I tend to sort of relax and stop doing things that were really positive for me. Right. You know? But it's also, it, it obviously waxes into a very negative cycle where yeah. you're just, you know, harping on yourself for yeah. not doing good enough or for not doing enough or the things that you want, you know, whatever thing that can obviously turn into this negative cycle of yeah. just hating yourself, which I think, so I think it's like, at least, especially for me, it's very important to maintain like a healthy dose of you're doing fine, but you need to be doing a little better. Like, yeah, forward. like yeah. there's these things you need to work on. And, and so like trying to find that balance of like, you fucking suck. Yeah. And like, you're great is hard for me because when I have those moments of you're great, it's like, awesome. I'm going to lay down watch some TV. Yeah. <laughs> and then those moments yeah. where I'm like, you fucking suck. I'm like, God damn it. See, I, I do that to too. I do that too, where it's almost <laughs> like a bipolar thing. Right. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I love this idea intellectually, not that I've done enough work at actually applying it, but the whole idea of, like, treating that inner voice as, like, your inner parent, you know, and mm. thinking, like, how, if this voice was me parenting my child, what would I think about that? And be like, oh my god, I'm being a horrible parent. <laughs> so, and trying to change that voice in a way where if it was your kid, you'd be like, Solid. I'm doing good. <laughs> well, and that's what you think about it. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Like pulling away, like one step removed from yourself. To... Yeah, because I think that's the biggest problem is we don't treat ourselves objectively. Right. You know, we have a hard time applying the same standards to ourselves that we do other people. Mm-hmm. Whether you know we're being too easy on ourselves or too hard on ourselves. Right. Well, and that's why I think that's like a lot of the time I advocate for like certain like community or environment like changes more than like internal changes because I do think that like a mindfulness and a way of viewing things is really important um, to be able to have that self-control really it comes down to that point of like being able to like in in cognitive behavioral therapy like a huge part is reframing so being able to take a situation where that like yeah those events happened but you're also you you are also seeing them in a certain light so one of the big things that they try to do is to create a different frame to look through so that you can actually have like positive ways of like at least being able to let it go not fixate on it so but like to me it also 
I, I, I advocate for that, the inner parent thing, like being able to take that, that reframing on that cognitive aspect. But the one thing that I always worry about is that you, that can become a very good tool to not do actually anything externally. So like you have to be, um, or I guess not advocate for, um, there being an overall environment change. So like behavior change and environment change are two different things. So you like, you're using that in a way where you're like, I need to go work out. Like that's another behavior that you need to go. So you need to go to another environment where there's like wherever you, whatever you need to work out, you can do it in your room if you want to. But, um, so for me, one of the things is also like the importance of changing the environment to allow certain behaviors to occur which I think that is such a huge point for like infrastructure doing society-based things. It's like, what would you, what behaviors do you want your environment to increase? Yeah. You know? So, so how do you differentiate the two? Because like to me, the individuals make up the community. So like mm -hmm. in order to have a community change, you start at the individual level. So I'm kind of like, where do you see the Oh, that's interesting. Totally. So, I'm a well, little bit more the other way, but it's, that'll be interesting to get into. For me, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a layered thing. So like the idea, I guess, is like, if we take into the consideration that like, we see time as like a linear fashion, you have this idea that like, there will be a certain time where people are developing. And this is, I'm just using this example because it is like a lot of people's way of looking at the world already. But it's like you, as a child, you have very little control over your life. Like, almost everyone can do something to you to make you do something, right? <laughs> so that is, like, a point at which you don't have any... That's, like, no personal effect on that. That's all environment. Limited agency. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Limited agency, for sure. So the idea, though, is that that kind of limited agency can occur almost infinite. I would say infinitely. It's just that the, the outside controls change. So the environment changes. So we like to house that in like the, like if you do like a scientific worldview, you can go look at like, well, what are the laws of physics? What are the laws of the biosphere? Because those are limiting me. I have no control over those things. But what I can do is taking that as my rule set, I will work within those things to change my behavior, right? Okay. So, but one of the things that I think we forget about as like, People sometimes, I guess this is more like an intuit, I haven't thought about it like enough to really say whether or not this is true, but it's like we forget that what we can also do is make a lot of community oriented like places that will influence people's behavior. So like why do you go to school to learn that whole idea of like the university of like, why is it that if you go to a few buildings that are all like centered on certain things where there's like a philosophy going on, like there's the people just come there to show up and like speak words at you. Now you'll learn, but maybe in your, like in your off life, you know, or in your like free life, you don't do that there. Right. Why is that you're productive at work? You're not, you know, you're not productive at home. A lot of people, well, because I've like learned from home for like my whole life, so like I can study home really yeah. good. But, like a lot of people can't take online classes, so totally. like nobody knows that I didn't do my right. work. Right, which I will. So and for oh yeah, please. No, no. Uh, I was just gonna say that also 
you probably have set up your office in such a way that facilitates that to a certain yeah, degree. So, yeah. so it's still an environment. Yeah, too. and there's there's lots of things that can influence it. To an extent. Which is like, it's like Jordan Peterson's advocating for cleaning your room. You know, that sort of gets you in the mindset that I'm right. in order and I'm going to do these things. And on a more societal level, you know, you can start to make places that some, you know, somewhat influence people to be more like that. Exactly. And you're not necessarily trying to take the most conscientious, self-disciplined person and make them do the things that they're already doing more. Mm-hmm. You're more trying to get those people that are, uh, you know, more environmentally focused to sort of, you know, exactly. direct in a certain way. Well, I do think it varies. I mean, you have people who are exactly. very individually grounded, you know, mm-hmm. they've seized mental control over their life, you right. know, and they refuse to let the environment really impact them, or at least as much as they can. Right. Or they're trying to seize control of their, you know, their behavior For and sure. all that. There's definitely a scale of people yeah. like <laughs> environment to individualism. And I think, I think it has a lot to do with kind of, um, you know, your circumstances. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, they're you know, just trying to make enough to get by and they have all these external responsibilities and a lot of times they don't feel like they have room to take control. Yeah. You know, this idea of like necessitous men are not free men. <laughs> the, the presence of necessity um, overtakes, you know, your ability to exert your, your free will in a sense, you know? And I, I agree with that in the sense that the more you're having to deal with things that have to be done, the less you can exert your free will over what you'd like to do. Um, but, so just kind of the idea of like, you know, our societies, what we, the structures that we create around us are an environment. You know, it's no different than being in the jungle, you know, as a hunter-gatherer. Or, you know, like Drew was saying, the idea of the biosphere as a whole. It's, you know, you create an environment, and to a certain extent, you're going to have to adapt to the needs of that environment. And so if we think about that and try to create an environment that... Um, facilitates certain type ways of life over others, you know, in ways to make it easier for certain things. I think that's really important. Yeah. One, I just wanted to jump Please. in with one little, I have a couple, like, these aren't necessarily perfect examples, but I think a good example is, um, like, having more recycling bins available. Right. You know, that's mm-hmm. something that easily facilitates a behavior that most people in the society say is positive. And we've noticed, it's pretty easy to see that, you know, say you have a trash can every you know, 100 yards, and you have recycling bins every 500 yards on yeah, the street. Yeah, there's less recycling. There's less recycling. Yeah. People just throw their, their recycling in the trash because yeah. it's not immediately available. Yeah. And, and a, a, sort of, a sort of a slightly different, maybe like more psychological aspect, people have done some research, in, and unfortunately I don't know who did, who did the research, but there's been research done about like playing classical music in public areas. And it's shown that violent crime will go down in those areas. That's from amazing. Just having classical music being played. See, and I, I feel like this brings up a wider conversation, which is like, in what areas is it more effective to try and influence individual behavior or change environmental factors? Because I think it's mm-hmm. going to differ from situation to situation. No, and I totally agree. One of the things that I thought that would be a really good like illustration of that is like, I, I never think that you shouldn't be able to like have a space where you go to and then be able to do whatever the fuck you want. Like you should have a home basically is that idea where it's like you like you get a lot. You don't have to need anything if you've gotten everything right. that you need, obviously. 
It's um, interesting, like, parallel to that, though. So, like, at the home level, too, the environment's a big issue. And, like, yeah. thinking about, like, impoverished communities, right, the environment, that they're, they're like, stuck in an environment where... Yeah, they're, that they state no of necessity. Yeah, yeah. And they don't even necessarily under- have an idea of how to get out of it. Well, and I don't... I think one of the things that I want to, like, make clear is that it's not as though like, wealthier people don't have necessities, but that they are so able to fulfill those necessities <laughs> that they just, like, that they don't need well, to think almost, about them. A lot of them are kind of necessities of choice, you know what I mean? It's not like you're going to die if you don't yeah, make I mean, a good business Well, move. I'm like, just saying <laughs> you could die if you don't eat. I mean, that's true. True. So that, I think, like, having the needs of a business owner is different than, like, being a poor father, like poverty line where yeah, being like, right. <laughs> being like, I need to feed my children tonight. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, the I, I'm trying, I am trying to ground it in actual needs. So there are the psychological needs that are those are Higher more difficult, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. So the Maslow is pretty good for for that. That's certainly a good way to think about it. Yeah, I think so. I, I know but, that it doesn't technically work that way, but yeah. but the reason, the only reason why, like, I'm I'm. I guess stressing the fact that there are the needs is because I think if we actually are able to agree on that, like on the fact that, so like saying everyone needs to eat, we still don't really even say that because there are, there's starvation that's occurring and stuff like that. But the thing, the idea would be like, everyone needs to eat. How do we make that the best thing? How do we make that like the most like sustainable, most economical, most, you know, like, I, I guess like, um, effective system for good behaviors so it's like if we all say that health is health is also a need right to be healthy is also a need it's like people there are plenty of people who would say that that's not a need like you need to be in a healthy weight it's like there's a lot of people who would say well we don't even know what a healthy weight is and it's like I, it's obviously way bigger than what we portray as, like, magazine covers of, like, beautiful women or beautiful men. There's obviously a way bigger dynamic between that. But also, if we say that you're, like, 600 pounds, like, we're pretty sure that's that that's not good, life. right? Yeah. Exactly. But yet we still don't have any kind of, like, real regulations on food, right? And so there's, like, this weird dichotomy between, like, freedom and then good systemization towards like things that we actually do need i feel like there's a lot of needs this that is, we this like... is tough because like i feel like you can go overboard really quickly right. it's yeah like, well then you know on one hand about. it's like you don't want to make it so people can't go eat shitty food no because like that's going to get really dark really quickly right. Right. but like you want to make it so there are economically and conveniently available forms of healthy living yeah. that should be a thing i'm not saying that this is easy and i'm yeah. not saying that it doesn't need to be really nuanced see but like we're getting into the whole environment versus individual thing again because it's like for a lot of people you know buying a quick easy shitty meal is all they really have time or money well, or knowledge why for is, so the shitty part isn't necessary the quick and easy and cheap, it's, it's that is. Like they're not yeah. buying the food for nutrition, they're buying it for the right. drug. It's like a drug. Right. You know? That's but what I'm saying. And but... people, you know, the more desperate people's situations, the more prone they are to getting addicted to exactly. those kinds of things. I agree, but if we don't say that there is also an economic effect on that, I think that that's what not mean, reasonable. What oh, yeah, I mean, the cost to society from that is massive, just oh, from, like, yeah. the health side. Well, like, the medical the, costs and the just, I mean, well, just the, the interpersonal. Who, who create those kind of foods. Like, I get that there's, like, a sugar, there's a mount, there's, 
There is, like, you can train your tongue to be able to be sensitive to the point where you don't need to eat a whole pint or more, a whole gallon of ice cream. Sure. That's, that's true, you can, but the, the issue is that it's way easier to prey upon pre-existing programming from, you know, thousands of years of I having agree. fat, salt, and sugar be right. where I agree, yeah. but this is, but again, that's, I'm, I'm set, that's a prey thing. Yeah, people. That's not to me. That's not an ethical thing. They're not no, trying not, to make the system as good as possible. Right. They well, are I mean, trying that's a to really core part of our economic system. Yeah, you know, but that's it over morality. But yeah. you see how that that whole idea divorces it from the environment and benefiting either the individual or oh completely. The I mean, if we wanted to loop it back again to climate change, I mean, next to fossil fuels, the next biggest impact is animal agriculture, yeah. and, oh, yeah, and a huge sure. part of that is you know the fast food industry yeah. it's a big chunk of that market yeah. so I mean, in my opinion what's going on in that area like looking back at history where we look at back like oh it's gonna be disgusting in the history books one barbaric thing it's like how the hell well i mean it's 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 practically like industrial torture yeah and then feeding people the meat of these creatures that have just been in these like mechanical torture machines full of antibiotics that way we fuck up our freaking antibiotics dude yeah we're gonna have we're gonna have all these antibiotic resistant bugs because of it i think something like 60 percent of our antibiotics are used Used on animal agriculture, yeah, and like so you have them in the just yeah. <laughs> and so you have like these like cesspools. Oh, gonorrhea. Gonorrhea. It was gonorrhea. Oh, okay. Well, you have like these cesspools of like these just absolutely repulsive conditions, and then you're just flooding that with antibiotics, yeah. and then all those bacteria is like, ooh, that's evolved. Like yeah. it's disgusting. <laughs> it's absolutely disgusting. Well, according to a new report, this is from uh, sustainable sustainable. <laughs> sustainable table sorry that was weird, weird for me to read for some reason uh, sustainabletable.org says according to a new study by the FDA approximately 80% of all antibiotics Jesus. used in the United States are fed to farm animals <laughs> yeah so if you look at that I wow mean, like, wow. so my so, brain thought 80 was too insane and so 60. Like, <laughs> I mean, this could just be a new thing too it might maybe, maybe it, it went might up 20% up. I mean holy fuck I just think that, like, the idea that I'm trying to get across overall is that there's an individual and an environment. Right. You right. don't just People center on one. one together right. Time. Exactly. Well, like, I mean, still try to yeah. improve both. Right. Well, right? It's, it's like with climate again. I mean, there's the environmental factor of the economic system, the market itself. You know, and so you have these oil companies going, well, you know, the profit motive and these other things. And so I'm going to sacrifice the future for profit. And so, I mean, that environmental factor is very real. If you create alternative incentives within the environment, it's going to shift behavior. Exactly. And there are many situations where that's going to be more effective than lecturing someone. Be like, well, you'll make a lot of oh, money if you fuck us over, but don't do it because yeah, that's, that's bad. <laughs> Looping back around a little bit to the whole, like, uh, subsidy problem with uh, electric cars and stuff like that. Uh, you know, that's, I think, one of the best ways to go about that is to make it so cheap to use sustainable products that yeah, the exactly. alternatives become right. silly, yeah. you know, because right now it's essentially the opposite. If you don't think about the ethical problems yeah. or the impact that it's having, then the, the less sustainable products are way cheaper. And that's the problem is most people are just at the supermarket, for instance, looking at price change and they're like, well, I could get this steak for 10 bucks or this steak for 20. And, yeah. you know, most people are going to obviously go for the cheaper option. Yeah. So I think one of the only ways that you can start to shift at least our society towards a more sustainable, uh, you know, 
system or more sustainable consumption is have heavy subsidies to drive the costs of better right. alternatives down and maybe even taxes to drive the cost of, uh, you know, like less. carbon tax. Yeah, that's what we need is to tax the people that carbon are tax. You know, subsidized for free, basically. Well, yeah, I mean, we need to start yeah, taking idea. into account the future cost. Yes. I mean, that's very real. Well, so. that's, and again, that's, I guess, the worldview thing that I, like, that I stressed earlier that I think is so important is to tie it to the whole idea of, like, the biosphere, because... All of everything that we're talking about right now has to deal with, like, sustainability. Every time you say sustainability, you need to work, okay, well, what are you trying to sustain? Right, yeah. You know? And that's like, okay, well, if we have the biosphere to work with, at least we can say we have these resources, at the very least. These are the resources we know. But we can go way, I think we can go way more intricate than that, because we're also talking about, like, morals and stuff. Like, if you look at, like... Yeah, what kind of life do we want people to have? Exactly. That's really the core of the discussion. Because we're living, and, and we're like, we're, you can live in a very wide variety of things. Humans are very, Humans are very good adaptable. at adapting. Yeah, at That's adapting. very different from a good life. Exactly. What we're capable of adapting to and what is, like, good for a, you know, vibrant and, you know, well-lived human life. Long-term, too. Yeah, long-term, yeah. for yeah. sure. Because even... You know, I think that's a huge part of the, the climate problem too, and the and the AI problem as well is just the the scope of it. Like fifty years isn't you know fifty years is one of the short term projections or the um, like the shortest term projection for when we can have AGI on like an average. I can't remember. It was exactly. the, roughly if you yeah, pull all computer scientists, the average computer scientist will tell you around twenty fifty is when they expect twenty fifty. Okay, that's Thank you. right around yeah. when we're going to start seeing some of the shitty parts of climate change. So, see, that's interesting too. Is what are going to be the applications of AI? I feel like the first thing is going to be fix climate, climate yeah. change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, what I was trying to say with that though is that it's even even if it's thirty two years, which is shorter than fifty, like I was saying, I feel yeah. like a lot of people have a trouble abstracting like how to deal with that, you know, yeah. it's so far away. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people too, I think, especially older generations have this mentality of, you know, well, climate change may be happening, but I'll probably be dead when it hits, you know? And so, hey, well, I'm not going to be Graham Graham. So, <laughs> like... <laughs> so you know, it, it's hard for people to make decisions here and now that make their lives harder, like spending more money on, you know, more sustainable food or whatever it yeah. may be that, that will, you know, better the lives of people that they don't even know or the future that they may not care about, for instance. See, so that's, I, I think, I really do think that that kind of like individual choices within the marketplace is completely insufficient given oh, yeah. the trajectory we're currently on. I think we need big radical changes. I think it's just logically incorrect too. It's like the moment that one the moment that the system gets more power than the individual, it will always snowball then at that point. Yeah. The individual doesn't have choices anymore. Yeah. All the hierarchies tend towards authoritarian dominance. Yep. Yep. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, yeah, sure, like a, a small scale voting with your dollar doesn't really have a large scale impact. But if we can start movements where those types of things are happening I on agree. a much larger scale, I do think that could have an impact. It could have an impact. I, I think the best, my own personal preference is that the best way I've seen it described is that we need a movement that understands that we need to change things in a more fundamental systemic way, yep. but that you should still have as part of that movement kind of that individual activism, less because you think it's going to be what fixes everything, yep. and more just kind of like as 
a way in grounding your resistance yeah. and your own moral authority as an individual to say totally. it's a symbolic way to ground that resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And right. I, I really like that. Totally. That's a good idea. But yeah. if you get too stuck in the idea that it's your fault because you're not recycling and you're eating meat and you're driving your car, I think it's going to cause more harm than good. And even yeah. a serious effort by people to change that, I think, will not be strong enough to defeat the systemic forces that are going to push against them for their own interests. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a, a very good case to be made for that. And, like, the whole, like, be the change you want to see in the world, I think that's important for, like you're saying, moral consistency. Right. And, and for you to really evoke that, you know, kind of rhetoric that yeah. helps to change people's minds. Yeah. The stoic mindset. Exactly. exactly. But, but it can't just be that. Yeah. It, it won't be enough. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think there's been a lot of effort to kind of push people into that way of thinking because I think it it just kind of turns their criticism inward instead of them going out to try to change something in the world. Right. Mm. You got to get that first, and then once you got your yeah. baseline, you got to yeah, exactly. help other people. Exactly. You know? And it's it's also a very common fallacy that gets used. I think it's one of the more common ones that people don't call people on is kind of like the YouTube fallacy. Yeah. Where it's like you come to someone for, for a, like a small scale example, you come to someone with a problem and you're like, hey, like, you know, I don't like it when you say, you know, negative things towards me. Right. And they're like, well, you say negative things towards me all the time. And it's okay, you know, so that's like a separate argument, right? right? It's like, okay, well, if you also have a problem, then we can talk about that afterwards. But right now we're talking about what you do yeah. to me, and that's this separate entity, right? Yeah. And so uh, it's it's kind of, you can extrapolate that up where, you know, somebody comes up and they're like, hey, like, I don't like that you're destroying the planet with, you know, such and such industry. And they're like, well, you buy meat all the time, and that's bad. Or yeah. you drive yeah, your yeah, car, yeah. and that's bad. One so, does not cancel out the other. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I have a question for you guys. Go for Thinking it. back to the nutritional side, mm -hmm. what would you guys think about a sin tax on sugar? Like something like what we have on marijuana and alcohol and right. like to try to like discourage. I think that is completely reasonable. Yeah. yeah, I mean we do that with cigarettes right. and that's yeah. been very effective. Yeah. And we know how harmful sugar is now. Like, yeah, it's know, bad. Well, it's both harmful and addictive. It's right. literally exactly. like I can't yeah. see any... Yeah, it's nature's candy, between. man. It's right. almost <laughs> an even more insidious... Arm, at yeah. least now because it's in everything and and because it's we don't such talk about it as much. level yeah we it's normal it it's completely normal because the, the sugar industry did so much to suppress yep. research for yeah. so long and change the food pyramid <laughs> like what the fuck see uh, that's another thing it's kind of like that you know that corporate uh you know manipulation of scientific yes. you know, consensus is yes. like we were really talking about gross. earlier that you know and that one is probably one of the most effective examples, where it's yeah, worse sure. better than almost Yeah, because it's so unconscious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, one, that one's, yeah, that's despicable. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you for attacks on that. And especially you take all that money and use it for help, public, you know, public, yeah, health, public yeah. awareness and, yeah. And, and even like a public health care system, if we want to try to fund one of those we need in that the future. No what. <laughs> I think it's been done in some really dumb ways. Like, I know there was like the, uh, the governor of New York a while back, um, I think Bloomberg. Anyway, he made big sodas illegal. Oh, yeah. That's, like, that's the far. stupidest yeah. way to deal with this problem I can think of. Like, it's just like marijuana, right? You bring it in, you give it a huge sin tax. People will pay a 40% tax because yeah. they don't want to be criminals. Yeah. Just, you know? Nobody's going to have a black market of sugar if you put yeah. a 20% tax. Use that money to help fix the problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. the moment that Especially. you actually 
Sorry, I was just going to say, point. especially high fructose corn syrup. But yeah. yeah. The Oops. moment that you actually put the syntax on there, even if that, I don't even know how difficult that would be, probably fucking terribly difficult. Yeah. But no, the lobby, yeah. But yeah. sugar would fight that hard. The moment that you do same with oil carbon tax, that's a yeah. big fucking fight. But the moment that you do it, it's like that people will ask why, you know, because it is one of those things that you're like, yeah, everyone, no one thinks about. Right. So it's like the moment you do it, they're like, what the fuck? This is like, why would that ever be a thing? And then you have to be like, well, here's what it does to you. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be nice if that could spark a, a little more conversation about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I feel like it's a tougher one, too, because it's so, um, I don't know, integrated into so much of the food we eat. Whereas with something like cigarettes, this is going to be like, okay, here's this thing you buy, and it's this isolated thing, and we just want you to stop smoking it. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. that's very different than, well, like, and it's we luxury. need to change how everyone makes food. <laughs> <laughs> the idea would be that, like, cigarettes are luxury, but it's like, if we just decided to take tobacco and spread it through, like, everything that's on the shelves at... at in the, yeah. in the fucking yeah, in, right. In, in, well, like, it's like nicotine cocaine. in your cereal. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Put actual cocaine in your coke. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Dude, yeah. And now they basically do, again, with just like high fructose corn syrup yeah. at such high levels that, yeah, it's, it's basically, cocaine. yeah, it's basically <laughs> it's still addictive. Although, of course, not as much, but still. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it, like I was saying, it's almost more insidious because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, how do you think we should respond to AI? <laughs> That's a complex one. Yes, it right is. Now, that was pretty broad. <laughs> right now where we're at, it's sort of in a recruitment phase. There's just not enough people talking about it or thinking about it. In particular, like I so mentioned It's just earlier. raising awareness right now. Yeah, because like like I was saying, like it's so focused on like just the machine learning experts, like the people yeah. that really know this stuff are the ones that are more thinking and talking about it. And then you sort of in the past few years had like more like philosopher types, like you right. know, Bostrom and Sam Harris and all these people getting more into it but it's still mostly like the cognitive sciences really understand the brain and stuff but like we don't have a lot of viewpoints like we need a historical viewpoint we need yeah. a, you know a guy that's a phd in history that's also an expert in ai you know safety that mm -hmm. can talk about like maybe mm -hmm. where problems in the you know we've had with technology in the past how we can learn lessons from that to you know maybe yeah. stuff like that Definitely. or you know approaching it from like a you know, more psychological standpoint or more like ethical philosophy standpoint because the big central issue we, we talk about a lot is the value alignment problem with AGI. It's just a you know quick way of saying that like we need the AGI system to be aligned with human values which we don't right. even know the human values so like some of the theories are that like we may use well, the system to determine our values which is well human values another. in theory or in terms of how they've manifested in our current That's society the problem. yeah because we don't want the manifestation right? no because yeah, if you say want them to find the best values for you which is like yes why do you even do that yes like, so that's the problem because the values as they've manifested in our current society are largely about you know accumulation of power and profit at any cost right. i mean that's a i don't want ai thinking like that yeah we're the, bad we're bad <laughs> yeah the other, no the other thing that i always think <laughs> that about example when we're talking about like ai alignment problems is you know once you start giving or even not giving once once you make a real ai that's going to be able to reprogram itself how do you even control its motives anymore because it could probably reprogram those too like i know i've talked to you about this before but just like that that to me is the the interesting part of that discussion is like okay you know even if we can 
ground the principles of you know what we would ideally like the AI to to do for humanity, and we can have some sort of consensus for that that seems like it could work. How do we even corral it enough to make sure? So that the technical side is that it has to, in order, if it's going to change its own values, there has to be like some motivation for it to change its values. So just That's like with humans, it's kind of the same thing. So the idea is. Hopefully, it's like kind of a controlled explosion. We just get it going in the right direction, where hopefully it doesn't, like, the next minute decide, oh, humans are shit, never mind, I'm just going to kill you all. <laughs> You're just better. You're killing the planet. I'd rather just have the planet. Like, yeah. You know, something like that. Sounds pretty reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the problem, is there is a really good argument for humans being, like, cancer on the planet, yeah. right? So you don't want the AI thinking that. <laughs> yeah. Agent Smith style. Right. <laughs> the virus. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, like, I think... Some psychology could definitely get into that kind of way of, like, thinking, too. Because we like to think that, like, you, like, you brought up the idea that, like, humans, like, also have, like, some values that they're probably working off of, or at least, like, base motivations that are happening. But I think that even that can be, like, questioned a lot of the time, because you get people who, like, would do, like, self-harm, or people who are in, like, bad state, like, schizophrenic states right. and stuff like that. I know probably schizophrenic would be more related to, like, if there was, like, a virus in the AI that messed up with some of those. I mean, that those. is the thing. Like, intelligence doesn't necessarily mean you can't have mental disabilities, right? Exactly. So there could yeah, be a exactly. super intelligent schizophrenic AI or bipolar AI. Well, I think those AI. geniuses, you know, or what you would call genius, have been neurotics. That's you true. know, they've had various kinds of abnormal mental conditions. Right. And I think a lot of times that high intelligence and that divergent thinking causes those yeah, mental exactly. disabilities, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, though, because, like, having, I feel like I definitely fall into the trap of trying to anthropomorphize AI a lot of the time, yeah. and it's, it's interesting to think about a machine that, uh, like, like maybe, you know, I don't understand it well enough to say that it wouldn't have some sort of, like, limbic system or even, like, amygdala-type thing going right. on, where, they, like, it could experience its own version of emotion. So if we give it a lead, essentially? <laughs> yeah, essentially. But it also seems weird that it would to me. Like, it yeah. seems more likely that it's I'm not, not going to have that kind of I'm saying it's on. either, yeah, either that is a very good thing, or <laughs> it is an incredibly bad thing. Right. That's because I mean, think the moral thing, that, that is kind of, that would be the Olympics. Well, I think mean, it's probably they, both. Humans, like, that's why, like, Musk and Kurzweil yeah. want humans to be the limbic system of AI. Yes. That's the idea of having, like, constant... It's music. just an extension of yeah. our cognitive so it's, abilities it's just disturbing our intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's that's sort of right now yeah. the best case scenario of anyone that actually like, has an idea of how this could go well. Yeah, is for that to happen. Yeah, it's interesting the the problems that Sam Harris brings up with that though as well of how like in order for that to happen, you have to have also gotten so you have to have like the, the, the up yeah the neuroscience done so that you can actually link that together and then also have made AI. And so by that, like, you've made this AI somehow separate already, right. probably. I mean, well, that's why, like, Musk is pushing now all his resources towards Neuralink, not all of his, but, like, he's, he gave up on, like, the AI side of it, and now he's focused on Neuralink as the solution. Because he doesn't think... To we, pair it with... Right, because yeah. he thinks we have to get that tech up, like, the exact problem he's saying here. Mm -hmm. We have to get that tech up way faster if we're going to be able to get, like, a good connection with them right. before we have AGI. Right. So that's why he thinks that that, you know, is... And Kurzweil has a similar view, but Kurzweil... I don't know if you... He's the director of engineering at Google, so he's invented mm -hmm. a ton of stuff. And he's very much into, like... The idea that inventions, you know, you have to be at the right time for them. Yeah. He thinks that essentially it's his, by his model, he thinks it's basically inevitable that we'll eventually get that invention 
within the same time frame as AI or whatever. But he's like really confident that we'll have. Yeah, I don't know that. Like, that seems like putting it on faith a lot. Right. right. Yeah, I don't know that he has enough grounding for that. Yeah. But just so you know, like what you know. Like, I have an interesting yeah. question about that. What do you think of the possibility of? So like let's let's say for like a small thought experiment that we do get the uplink capability in terms of the neuroscience down. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Like merging of our intelligence with some sort of other intelligence being kind of the jump start of like getting over the hump of you know the AI is not necessarily as right. good at rewriting itself to like now it's piggybacking on some really smart yeah. person so and you can actually like that's called selective like, intelligence. So that book Super Intelligence that <laughs> Nick Bostrom wrote he divides intelligence into super intelligence in a different categories. <laughs> so you can have the like specific like single computer AGI or you can have a collective intelligence which could happen different ways, right? But it's just the idea that all of humanity's intelligence together becomes super intelligent because we're so interconnected or maybe mm. the genetic modification okay. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So there are different paths to super intelligence. The, the most likely path most people feel is the like single AI, which there's a bunch of different ways that can happen too, right? It could be a neural network architecture. There's seed AIs that most, some people think could happen, but it's really unlikely since someone's found one. The seed AI means you just write a program push a button and suddenly it became a self-thinking AI yeah. like just you know by a few lines of code mm-hmm. like you just have to figure out that holy grail of code That'd so we're like a neural the other way is the machine work yeah learning. a neural network is like the machine learning closer okay. to what we learn we just feed it a bunch of data we don't really understand how it learns anything but we fed it a bunch of data and now it knows the answers right mm-hmm. um, but yeah so the collective intelligence is you know I mean, it's that's definitely like that's one of the arguments for the fact that super intelligence is even more inevitable than AGI more specifically. Because even if we can some for some reason can't make a specific super intelligent computer individually, we can definitely eventually like get more and more connected. And we're already moving in that direction, yeah, even right. without the brain helmets. As we get more connected, right? Even social like, media is kind of like a primitive precursor to that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What were you gonna say about that though, Drew? The reason why I hesitate a lot with, like, the idea of even, like, super intelligence is because, like, trying to figure out how individuals link or come to conclusions, link information so that they can come to conclusions, is, like, I think a lot of us like to think of that as intelligence, but that also implies a lot. Like, because it's all about, like, reference and, like, coming to your conclusion based off certain premises. But if you're literally in, like, a different environment or, like, around different people, there are people who will come up to a different conclusion for, like, the same exact question, right? Uh Uh-huh. So it seems as though there's... And that's... I wouldn't say that their intelligence is something that's different there. I would say that their base motives that they're working off of, the premises, are the things that have changed. So what's your point there, then? Are you saying that the linking of people in and of itself will change the nature of their thoughts in a way that could be limiting? Is that what you're kind of saying? Well, in a way that can be, like, it's gonna really important. I, th- I just think that if we want it to, like, understand us, I feel like the, the super intelligence part is only one piece of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they're definitely, right. those are divorce problems. The mm-hmm. idea of superintelligence is that it can be completely cold. It doesn't have to have any kind of, like, understanding of our values. That's, some people hope that maybe that's the answer, is that we need to make it so that it attempts to find our values, but there's certainly a lot of mm-hmm. problems that you're bringing up there of, like, 
you know, raw intelligence doesn't necessarily get you the values. Yeah. yeah. Depends well, on your environment and all kinds of things. Because mine is just the core clarification. Oh, yeah. Are we talking about the, like, AGI that's separate from humans here or the AGI that, or, like, a Introverted. Like, integrated intelligence. collective intelligence? And overall, I was really talking about intelligence in general. But, yeah, I mean, I guess in this case it would be, well, I just, I would need to know what they are, what they're saying about the general intelligence because it seems as though... Are you wondering, like, how intelligence is defined? Because they're using, like, the really pedantic version of, like, like G... Yeah, so like, well, that's what I mean. Is like IQ that thing that's that rarely changes depending on your environment. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that depending on your environment, the premises that you're going to be using that those are very variable because it depends on what you're doing. So what I'm saying is that like to have it be divorced, I guess, would be to divorce from separate from us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be. I'm wondering what that would even like what the implications of that would be only because there's all of these this other like um brain information that that is not being taken into consideration like the idea of like the hippocampus being able to like be basically the center of like the unification of like past events other learning situations where you can like take in different sensory data it's like does it have a hippocampus does it have an amygdala does it have this or is it literally just like a prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. and then like if that's true it's like what does that is that what we're creating as like agi is that agi or does it have like the idea of store like another thing that came to my mind was storage mm-hmm. so like yeah you have like incredible amounts of intelligence but if you just strap on like this like crazier prefrontal cortex and your brain hasn't adapted to it like is that going to be something crazy like you're able to process a bunch of information now quicker but does that also make it so that all of your dopamine system is now like firing way quicker than it should be and so you get kind of like parkinson's disease, so now you're talking happens. back about like integrating it with humans yeah i guess yeah okay. so because that would be like i guess that would be the Neuralink kind of thing is that agi or is that because i thought that was the super I thought agi was just so like... agi specifically just means a general intelligence independent of humanity right. so it could exist in this computer right not connected at all to us not necessarily okay. it could be okay so the thing is with Neuralink, we could be connected into an agi Neuralink is oh, okay. the bridge but agi is right. just the capacity but we could also not have agi and just have Neuralink and be connected to each other and that's where we get just a collective intelligence from okay collective see that's interesting too that's a trip. So AGI yeah, seems trip. to me like a creation of like another brain, where it would have a story. I mean, that's essentially how current AGI is developed, or not AGI, current narrow AI is developed, just, you know, neural networks, which mm-hmm. is basically all, you know, based off the brain model. Yeah. Totally. We, we can't really identify like centers of the brain, because like essentially it's just a black box to us. Like, totally. We, we sort of know that it form, it's formatted the way that we think neurons work to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, we just give it data on one end, and then we have an algorithm, which there's some nuances to different ways to actually implement neural networks and stuff. And there's like back propagation and yeah. calculus to go. So, but yeah, there's, <clears throat> I'm just like, the, it, it comes to me even in like the effect of like, are we taking into consideration what it would be to integrate this kind of intelligence? Because I think that like, it's that same idea of like you, so like, let's say like someone on cocaine, they can probably, they can think a lot quicker than everything else but that does put stress on the body right yeah. and anytime you actually get into a state at which your adrenaline's going and your brain is processing quicker that's not a good state i mean it is for the 
for the moment. Sure. But that's right? because our biology calls it those limitations. So like with a computer, totally. it, you know, that's the anthropomorphizing. Exactly. Aspect, it won't have any of those. Right? Yeah. But, but but like that's also if you're if you're talking about specifically with the, like neural uplink. Exactly. That's in that case, point. yeah, that's that's part of the whole science behind getting that to actually work is like we have to make sure that it's not like running your uh you know your computer on like uh what do they call that um when you like run your uh your drives like overdrive overdrive is that what they call it where it's like going overclock yeah it's not like overclocking your brain to the point where you're gonna burn yourself up in 10 years instead of you know maybe the 50 you might have had otherwise totally so we we have to obviously do enough research to where we know that's not gonna happen totally from that well then i also worry about what is the then what are we going to use ai for because right. that <laughs> idea, it seems as though... Well, it seems like what you remember Sam Harris's talk. He's yeah. like, even if you get it perfectly handed to you, how the hell do you make society function? Exactly. <laughs> See, when I'm, I'm worried about so many things. But, I mean, one of the big things I'm worried about is um, is it's going to lead to the rise in more authoritarian forms of government. I mean, just yeah. think about no, the fact of, like, the kind of mass data collection we're did doing right now. Did you see talk on fascism recently? No. He did a TED talk just a few months ago. He was saying that, that the control of data flow could lead to the rise of fascism. I agree. Because the big thing with previous fascism regimes, right, is that, like, they try to centralize too much stuff and it, have and it doesn't power. work. Right. But now and AI... Now, see, yeah. there's, there's multiple things with this. So, first of all, there's this whole other... Uh, train of thought right now in economics about how China is getting more and more scary because the viability of a communist state with the assistance of AI and a central planned gov- uh, economic system yeah. with AI helping it, it's a lot more viable right. now. Sure. And so when you pair that with an authoritarian government, I mean, that's, that's a powerhouse and it's terrifying. Yeah, that is terrifying. And so there's that whole thing. You know, even, I mean, I'm really worried about the United States, too. I mean, we have the biggest spying complex of any country. And when you take that massive amount of data and you give it to AI to analyze, to categorize, to put people into groups based off different characteristics. Minority report. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I mean, the ability of the population to resist a tyrannical government is going to be absolutely crippled. Yeah, and that's what Harari was saying, too. It's like, you won't even want to resist. That's the thing. You're going to have so much data that they know you better than you know yourself, and they're going to emotionally manipulate you to think that you love the dictator. See, I mean, that's part of what they're doing right now in China is they have this new thing they recently unrolled, which is like a citizen rating system. So they they have cameras all over the place in China, right? And they're just using basic facial recognition. Like, this is low-level shit. They're using facial recognition to track you, you know, whenever you're in public, where you're going, all these things. And you have, like, a citizen rating system. Yeah, watch that video. Depending on, you know, your views, how you behave. And, you know, if your rank goes down... It's going to be shit like you, you, you lose you your credit use score. Bus and shit. Yeah, yeah, you like, can't well, use the bus. Gets, uh, if it gets bad enough, they strip you of your passport. Yeah. I mean, we're yeah. seeing where this is going. It's like it's, making you a prisoner. Yeah. 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 It's scary. That, that is super scary. And, I mean, they're also, uh, this is slightly related to the whole, like, Google Dragonfly directive. Uh, have you heard about that? Mm. Where they're, they're making a Google that will specifically uh, to work in China stuff uh, in China where, like, certain searches will be directed in different okay, ways. Okay, this like is that. something that's really freaking me out lately, is there's this huge new uh, censorship push in the United States yeah. due to all the political turmoil going yeah. on. Oh, they're sure. pressuring Facebook, they're pressuring Google, it's starting to happen, like, they took Alex Jones down, that's yeah. how it starts, yeah. and it's getting worse and worse, and I mean, I just saw the number two uh, from Facebook go and talk before Congress, 
And I mean, this Republican senator, Tom Cotton, he was essentially being like, you know, we, we want you to take WikiLeaks down. And we want you to assist us in, you know, targeting our adversaries in Iran and China and Russia and Korea. And so, I mean, the government's pushing for this. And we know that these companies don't have principles. Yeah. Because the fact that Google's going to work in China yeah. means that if the profit's there, they're going to go. So the only variable is, will they be bullied into it by the government? And the government's trying. So, <laughs> I don't like That's it. Super scary. <laughs> yeah, for real. What do you think? What, what would you call like your economic philosophy? I I don't think anyone's actually came out with a good terminology for it yet. It's closer to what Eric Weinstein advocates, which huh. is sort of like a I'd say like a baseline of socialism with like an Austrian like free market on top, but with the constraint that within that free market, what we consider violence is much more clearly defined. Like That's anything so that damages the 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 call it the, the Ecosystem right. violence and totally. that needs to be regulated. Totally. All right, so we're back without an introduction, but yeah, economic and models. And unbreak. Talking about economic <laughs> models. <laughs> so please continue, whatever you're saying. Okay. Okay. Just the basic. Like, I mean, I get a lot more. Like, so I, I think public welfare programs are more important right now than like actual socialism. I don't want to see the government like seizing assets from people, but I think things like universal health care from a perspective yeah, that's, like medical that's very different. really important. Yeah. Or universal education. Exactly. Or, yeah, 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 all yeah. those kind of things. Like, any, you know, things that we think of as universal, but it doesn't require the government to go out and actually take people's things no, from them absolutely. and say, now I own this. Like, Medicare for All, it's you still have private, you know, medical companies, and you're just paying taxes to the yeah. government, and then they foot the bill, and they exactly. negotiate prices, which keep prices down, and all that shit. Yeah. I think, like, for, for me... One of the things I was talking about with my friend Jason, because we were talking a little bit about this, and I wanted to center my own personal ideas, like so center it in its economics. Jason, the oh, philosopher? Yeah. 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 He's getting his PhD in philosophy. Yeah. And environmental science. Nice. Um, a combo? Yeah. <laughs> and, like, the idea was, the only reason why I wanted to choose the university was because it was housed in a place where it was, we were talking about this a little, like, the other night, but, like, it's housed in the, like, you know, want for knowledge, want for truth, and, like, I think it would be a good place to be able to, like, counter corruption. But uh, one of the things that I find so interesting is it seems as though we want these systems so that they can organize things better, right? Like, that's, like, the whole idea for me about creating a system is, like, we all have agreed that, like, not one of us is able to say this is how everything's going to happen. We're not going to do it in this kind of, like, commander or authoritarian way. We wanted to have, like, these other systems that all interplay and create a better organization of ourselves so that people can become better people and individuals can become better individuals, but also so that they don't infringe on everyone else's ability to do so, right? But... Even though that I feel like is an implicit idea of, like, when we go and try to structure these things, I think a, a lot of people, like, have that implicit value in them. I don't think that people critically use that as a way to judge our systems right now. Because I don't think that you can look at our systems right now and from all of the information that we have, say, this is the best system. Okay. And yet, no, no. And not in any area. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You can look at any individual system and say, like, we have so much we can do to make this better. Yeah. yeah. You know? and, and the shitty part about that, too, is, like, I mean, I think in almost any system, that's probably going to be true regardless. Like, we're probably never going to get to a point where we're like, this is perfect. Yeah. Right? But the issue that I see with that is that I don't see a lot of improvement. Yeah. Like, 
We're not trying to yeah. make it better in a lot of ways, well, it seems like. To and, me, I think that's probably um, a symptom of the concentration of power. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, if, you have, yeah, if you have embedded power structures that obviously like the status quo because it's made them powerful, <laughs> then they're going to use their power just to perpetuate what exists. And right? that's why I want to, like, that's why I think the big thing, you bring up efficiency, like, that was, like, that whole idea is to, like, improve towards that goal. But what I'm saying is that I don't even know, because I think the goal is so implicit right now, is, like, because it's not explicit, people can't, like, critically think about our systems and be like, wait, are those even the values that they're working off of anymore? Because I don't think that's true. I don't think that they're working off of kind of the values that we set forth of, like, trying to improve everything and organize things better so that everyone can benefit. I don't think well, that's at all. There's a lot of these core problems. I mean, when you think about the idea of, like that we could face a situation where we just have a bunch of really wealthy people with AI and no one has jobs. I mean, that invalidates the right. whole underlying reason for having an economic system, which is to provide work and a life, a, you know, a livelihood for the mass of people. I mean, when you, when you're a regular person and you say, what's the point of the economic system? It's well to create a good life for everyone, you know, to create a good society. You would think. And if we reach a point where there's literally no work for people, then that invalidates like the whole purpose so ostensibly because now you're saying, okay, well, what's the real purpose just to make a few people really powerful? Exactly. And that's, I think, I think that would be. I, I would argue there's some real truth in that. I <laughs> wouldn't localize that in just the economic system, the idea of like for making sure. a better life for everyone. I think that that's more of a society in general. There's a lot of overlapping, but economics is certainly a huge part of people's well, lives. Well, nine to five, you're interacting with the economic system yeah, at what least. What is it, 80,000 hours? Is that right? Right, that's how many hours you work in an average lifetime. Because it, to me, it seems certainly as a big though, chunk of your life. <laughs> really, economics impacts you from every other direction too. You're shopping, yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. well, and now you're seeing. I mean, even the political system, which is supposed to be kind of a counterbalance to other things, you're supposed to be able to exercise your political system to change some other things. Right. That was what. I was if that happened. gets seized by the economic yeah. system, well, now we have crony capitalism, where right. you know the government's in bed with these big oh yeah and stuff, and oh, essentially yeah. the businesses write laws in order to impede yeah. more businesses from yeah. right. becoming defeated. But that's kind of the natural development of things. And, I mean, that's well, happened all throughout our history. Here's the only reason why, like this, like I, I totally, I think a lot of people have gone down this kind of like pathway too, where they see that they're was supposed to be like the government and the economic system. Those were supposed to be separate and they were supposed to, the government was supposed to keep the economic system in check with laws. Really, it was like the big idea. But now the economic system was like, hey, what if we just pay the people in the government to just do whatever we want and now there's no laws to constrain us? Well, this right? gets back to, in my view, this gets back to Cicero. Because the whole thing of like, because like, okay, so Cicero and Rome talk about how in order to have... He essentially, he was around when uh, Caesar came to power, and he was talking about how if we could redo Rome, the way I would do it so that the public would survive, is you need to have three check and balance powers within the society. You would have democracy, that's one of them, aristocracy or wealth, that's another, and then monarchy or the government, that's another. And he said you need all three of these to have equal power within the society so they check each other, because each one of them devolves if it's left unchecked. Government turns into tyranny, aristocracy turns into oligarchy, democracy turns into mob rule. And so what we had in America was, very early on, it was tilted in favor of the aristocracy. And as that got 
really powerful with the industrialization. You have all these big monopolies. Government goes, oh shit, they're running away with the society and we need to check them. So you're starting with Teddy Roosevelt, you had the government get way bigger to try and check corporate power. But then eventually, they had a tug-of-war one-on-one, which means one of them's going to win, because there's not that third, you know, check to keep it balanced. Well, the monarchy. And now you've had, you've had the, the wealth seize control of the majority of the political system. That monarchy check, I feel like, is super difficult in kind of our mindset as Americans to have that. Well, right, but the president, government. yeah, government but, And I do get the president is supposed to, that, that's supposed to be the monarchy. And, and right? yeah, we'll see the way the Founding Fathers, because the Founding Fathers drew a lot of inspiration from Cicero. Right. And they talked about, they tried to exemplify those things within institutions. So when Cicero talked about, he talked about it as actual, the dynamic of power. So rather than, like, there's an institution that represents that power, it's more like, no, 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 no. How much power do the people have? How much power does wealth have? How much power does the government have? Holistically. Taking into account all the ways that they can influence things. The Founding Fathers made it so the president was supposed to represent the monarchy in this concept. The Senate was supposed to represent the aristocracy. And remember, at this time, the Senate was not voted. You were, so, you were selected by government officials. We didn't get to vote on the Senate until like 1912 or something like that. And then the House of Representatives was supposed to represent the people, the democracy, because it was way easier to become a member of the House of Representatives. Um, but, I mean, those institutions were not accurate representations of that power within the society. You know, the House of Representatives wasn't a wholly owned expression of the will of the people. Right. You know, and so it, it, white dudes. yeah. <laughs> First. Very quickly, the aristocracy became the powerful, the most powerful. The the only reason why I was like trying to break it down is I like I can kind of see. I would probably have to read more Cicero for that because I I do get. We didn't how get it, super far into it? Because how is the monarchy like? I I think the monarchy would probably be more of a like societally influential person. I don't know, it's hard. Like, how do you... What is... A king gets to do whatever the fuck he, he wants, really. Unless they all decide to revolt. And well, but this isn't... Head. This isn't... That's the whole premise, is that monarchy alone would be a king that gets to do whatever he wants. There's a lot of mixed king systems. Like, for example, like when no, the French Revolution true, right? was unfolding, mm-hmm. there was the idea for a while that we'd have a constitutional monarchy, where you have a king, but there's a constitution, and he can't violate the constitution... And, you know, the judges and the royalty could, you know, stop him from doing things because he broke the constitutional law. So Interesting. So then they also divorce law from that? They divorce law from the government? What do you mean? Like, who keeps the... Does the government keep the... Uh, it gets very convoluted. There's yeah. all these different checks. And and then okay. even in the American Maybe system, you have, yeah. you have, like, that system that was based off Cicero, but then you have the further out checks and balances of, like, the, the Supreme Court plus Congress plus presidency. So it gets really convoluted. But anyway. I guess from, like, my main thing is, like, we see that both, like, the economic system and government influence each other. And right now it doesn't seem like they're very much separate from each other. Yeah. And so we Which see... Which is scary because that's kind of the definition of fascism. <laughs> <laughs> Well, also, I feel like it could be a, also of of really any like I like socialism too. Well, my my personal take on socialism is a libertarian socialism, mm-hmm. which is 
not based in government doing things. It's based in no state ownership. No, no, no. It's it's workers owning and running the businesses themselves. So it's a grassroots socialism. Uh, Nineteen thirteen is when. Oh, one year off. <laughs> elected in the privacy of a voting booth, at least. So that's according to Senate.gov or Senate.gov. That's so weird that we don't know that, but not until the nineteen hundreds did we even vote for our senators. That is weird. But anyway. Yeah. Well, I don't think we know the underlying structure. I think I'm showing that personally right now. All <laughs> mine is like it, my mine's like intuitions of like what I've seen. But yeah, I have no idea like where it is that because the whole idea is like if you have a well structured system, you can be like, okay, well, what were the goals of the system in the first place? Right here. It feels to me like you're advocating for a kind a, like a like a merging of the political and economic systems. But in a way that was benevolent. I'm not advocating for it. I'm saying that that's what's happened, and so, so you, you just want it to exert that power for good. It's. I mean, I would nice. like to. Yeah, <laughs> if that's if that's our well, only. Was that your option. position? Because like my position is that will never happen because that concentration of power is inherently corrupting and self-serving, and so I think it has to be dismantled. Yeah, I mean, it would depend. I'd like, I could see that as being the way, but I would also say that, like, the other way is, is so that um, the government is now actually, like, truly, de like, democratic, too. So you'd have to... See, but if it's merged with the economic system, I don't think it can be. Right. Unless the economic system is democratic. Here we go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you merge them, if you merge them, then they... That if one was democratic, then the other would have to be democratic, too. Well, one will have to take over the other. I think we had a, I don't think a political... I think so, because what we have now is a political system that had democratic aspects to it. I never think it was very democratic. Mm -hmm. And then you have an authoritarian economic system. And if those two things are going to duke it out, one, I think, is going to have influence the other... Like, take... Spread its aspects to the other one. It's going to be the primary role. So I think we've now developed a more authoritarian government because of the influence that our economic system has over the government. Well, I guess my and I, and I do see, I definitely see that, but I see that through like through money, right? Like the the effect is that right. the economic system. There's been people who have like gotten so wealthy that they are now more influential on our quote unquote democratic government system, right, then we can be as, as the actual democracy. And so the way that I would say that is we say, we say that that's a thing, not okay, right? And then you have to use that same channel of, like, law system making to be like, yo, like... Well, how do you make laws if the, the legislature's already captured? Well, you have yeah. to put some, port, some way of pressure, right? You would have to pressure them somehow. What do, what do you think about that, Chris? What do you think? What's your, what are you Which aspect? Kind of yeah, you were listening a lot. I want to just give us a whole. <laughs> so, what did all that make you think of? <laughs> well, libertarian socialism was kind of the main. That's like, certainly where I'm coming back. Well, yeah, I could tell. Yeah. And he mentioned to me that you like Chomsky, so like that. Oh, I love me some Chomsky. I was expecting that one to come up. Um, like, I really like the ideas of libertarian socialism. I feel like, and I think this may be where you're coming from, mm -hmm. but it's almost it's just a little too impractical. Like the like the structures are already. That's what there. a lot of people think. And yeah. how are you do? How are you going to convince those people now to just give up all their power and like give all the resources? Okay. Like, you know, so so there's two there's two discussions here. There's 
what would a system like this look like theoretically and would it be better and then there's the tactics of how do you achieve it how do you get to it so that's kind of the point right. you're bringing and up. like my point is like i think that as a system like like a lot of different sort of utopian systems like communism or right. like pure austrian system if you could like have a ground up and like just make this poof out of nowhere sure it would work yeah but like the idea of getting from where we are now to there is just like so impractical. Totally. And there's so many different things that could be corrupted within that process yeah. that it could go worse. You know, we could end up in a much worse place trying to move that way. Just like the, what happens with communism. A lot of people have tried to do communism or, you know, state socialism right. in a positive way. But like, you know, like even going back to like Russia, you can argue that a lot of the people that pushed for the communist revolution weren't as like corrupt about it as Stalin was. But then sure. Stalin, exactly. despite no one wanting Stalin to be there. Well, and there's Stalin a lot of lessons charge. there. Right. I mean, I think the core problem there was thinking that any concentration of power could be used for the benefit of society without risk of it being captured. Right. So, I mean, I think... First and foremost, the first lesson there is the solution has to be uh, decentralized because we tried a centralized solution and it was immediately captured by authoritarians. So that's kind of like my first basis of yeah. my point of view. Um, as far as like ways to get there, so obviously I prefer an economy that was entirely democratic, but I understand that the transition to something like that is going to be really tough. So my first idea is to argue for creating a democratic sector within the economy. So aiming for 50% democratic businesses. And then once you have that on its feet, you allow that it's to compete. massive jump. Oh, I know. I know. Obviously, I'm just throwing that out there as like the aspiration. Okay. So here's some examples of concrete policies that are being thought of right now to deal with this. So right now, Jeremy Corbyn, who is the opposition leader in Britain, he's the head of the Labour Party. One of his platform positions is to create a democratic sector within the economy of democratic cooperatives. And the way they would facilitate this is they would create a new law that says whenever a business would either sell off a location or go public, they would first have to offer right of first refusal to the employees to buy out the business and run it democratically. Mm -hmm. And if the employees decide to do it, the government will provide the loan, the startup capital, and informational assistance to facilitate the, that transition and to become functioning before they pay it back. So that's that's one idea. And there's a lot of different ideas. Like it's for example, an interesting idea. The yeah. problem is there's no empirical evidence to support that that would work and that when people buy it, it's just like if Walmart... That the democratic it, cooperative itself would work? Well, on a small scale, but I'm saying like, let's imagine putting that into practice. Right. And let's say that Walmart gets... We allow all the employees of Walmart a chance to buy it. Yeah. A week later, Walmart is out of business. <laughs> okay, like there's just a lot of industries where like the average person has no idea what's happening. That's true. The bulk of this company is made of people... That are just average, and that's the most industries in the world. Well, I think that's also part of the system is it keeps them in that position of averageness. You well, know like, what I mean? Okay, so do you think IQ doesn't exist? Yes, someone with a ninety. No, I do IQ. think it exists. Okay, then, so then, like Walmart, the average IQ of a Walmart employee is ninety. How are you going to change that system to be to where these people can have? A so, in most of these democratic cooperative models, uh, how it works is you they're still managers, but you elect your manager. Right, but the people electing it don't understand what they're electing, so that's how you get Trump. You just get someone saying, oh, I'll give you all the big league wins and you'll right. get pay raises. But that's the whole idea of, like, there's still going to be, uh, you know, the impact of the market. So Right, which is what I'm saying. You, right. you, you initiate this, right. this happens, company collapses, which is why they don't exist in practice and why they need to be subsidized to start with. To because start if with. you try to do this in the real world, 
it collapses. Not all. There's there's a lot of examples of it. Do work on a very world. small scale. Not no. The seventh companies. largest corporation in Spain is a democratic cooperative. One company in Spain. Well, this, no, this is the biggest is one. It's, it's got I think what to say? It was I think over a hundred thousand employees. So that's the biggest one in the world. It's over a hundred thousand employees, and it started up all on its own. It didn't have any any funding, but it just it worked for whatever reason. And um, I mean, it's an absolute. Insane kind of industry? success story. It's a lot of different things. So it's an umbrella corporation. So it's got like so manufacturing. Like it's got grocery stores. Talking about like a Google type of people where the average person's got like a 145 IQ. I, well, I have no idea about the IQ. I think that the that's very well, important though. If we're talking about Google, Google can 100% run a democratic co-op because right. you've got a bunch of geniuses yeah. making decisions. Walmart cannot. From what he's told me, they. They have people from like GM and stuff. Co so, so they have their own. Yeah, they people. have their own labs so. as part of the corporation, and it, it's GM and what was the other one? Right. It. So my point is that it works in certain specific incidents, but it doesn't scale across the whole economy because you can't take that same model and apply it to Walmart or many, many, the vast majority of industries. You can take. See, but here's another argument: is I would say Walmart shouldn't exist anyway because it's. I mean, it just. I think it's a. Uh, I think it's a type of business that is, I mean, we subsidize, it pays its employees so little that we have to subsidize it with public assistance. I mean, sure, and take any other destroys local communities. One random example. I mean, yeah. you can pick Amazon, Amazon does that too, though. Huh? Yeah, Amazon. Amazon. I mean, pick any company is my point, yeah. though, is that, I mean, yeah, there's a big problem with subsidizing. You yeah. can argue that there's, that's part of the issue with the government and the way that those programs are structured right. to start with. Right. But, that doesn't necessarily mean that the model that they're using creates that problem. Yeah, it might be that there's another solution to that, like the universal income. Right, right. That's, sure. that's my personal, like, at the moment, I think there's, we still need a lot of discussion with universal income, yeah. but I think that's the direction we really have to move is, and, like, well, have you heard of Andrew Yang? No. Um, the Democratic mm -hmm. candidate? So he's a Democratic candidate for 20 years. Oh, Yang! Before, before we get into the universal basic income, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the, like, the IQ of running um, like the IQ of the average person running uh, some sort of democratic entity. So what, how do you confront that problem in this, the government that we have? Because like most people would say that some sort of democratic I'd say that's the problem with our government while we have Trump as president is because the average IQ of an American so, isn't that high. Well, the but I mean, he didn't even do. get the majority of the votes. So that's I mean, that's too. not necessarily representative of a democratic function. Right, and there's a lot of issues with that whole aspect of the system. Yeah. But then you can also argue, you know, tyranny of the majority and the fact that, you know, True. population centers tend to be the vote, so they have to modify. Okay, well, now vote. we're really getting to the thing is, you know, what's better, a uh, kind of a more authoritarian, idealistically a meritocratic system or a democratic system? No, merit meritocracy right. is what I'm particularly advocating for, not See, necessarily authoritarian right. meritocracy. Right. But that's, I, I think that's kind of the, like, I agree with you, meritocracy, but again, I think meritocracy is one of those things where it looks better on paper than in practice. But if you, if you stop with meritocracy, just all progress stops. There's no, you can't find an example. Oh, I agree. It was like, we didn't really care. Like, take Genghis Khan. He was the first guy that was just like, 100% meritocracy, now I own half the world. Like, <laughs> it's just effective. You can say it's it is effective, moral in some but ways, a lot but of times. It lose to the person who's yes. building with that system every time. I think a lot of times, meritocracy is kind of used as a justification for what really is just um, concentration of power. I, I think a lot of people... In some cases. Well, yeah, and that's an interesting thing, is like when you do have a meritocracy, you end up with huge concentrations of power because 
there are certain individuals that are significantly better than everybody right. else. Like Elon Musk, Musk, like, you know, he just... Out but that power does it's not like, you know, you have to go through this rigorous process to determine if you're fit to wield that power. That power passes well, through families. Well, well, yeah, now that's you know, a big issue, is how much wealth is passed through families. That's most wealth in this country is passed through exactly. the family structure. We don't even know where the wealth is. And that has nothing to do with meritocracy. Yeah. And it's not like we have a system where people's wealth that they generate is equivalent to their merit or their skill. I mean, right. you know, and the fact that it's getting more and more unequal. I mean, how many people in this country are poor and they're brilliant and they just, they never got a chance in life, you know? So, I mean. Well, but do you then say, okay, well, we're going to have everyone take an IQ test and then. Well, we do that have, constantly all the time. But. Well, but what I'm saying is we're going to have everyone take an IQ test and then unless you have this IQ, you don't get to be a manager. Or if you don't get this, see, I'm not into that. I don't know about specific positioning like that. Like, I like more of the German system where, like, you can help people find their path as they go. I love that shit, yeah. but I also worry that that does not solve the problem of families inheriting money. Oh, for sure, yeah. that's, that's what I'm saying. Is that yeah. you like because you? I mean, that's I mean, a problem that none of this has addressed. Like, nothing no. we have said is going to take money from the rich people and help anybody else. Yeah. That's the whole problem. That's a separate issue. Okay, this is heard a good solution. Okay, yeah, that's okay. hard. <laughs> this is kind of like a totally off topic, and I really want to get back to democratic cooperatives. So I have a ton of shit on that, and I want to okay. go into that eventually. But I had this rambo the other day of what if you had a progressive tax system that was linked to inequality of wealth itself. So, like, for example, the higher the inequality of wealth is within the society, the steeper the progressive tax system to try and funnel that back into the economy. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's literally a parody, kind of like if you paired, you know, uh, if you paired minimum wage to inflation. Right. The biggest problem we still have with taxes is what we just hinted on, is that most wealth is hidden yeah. and already Offshore shit and fuck yeah. You know? yeah. So, like, the richest people are the ones most immune to taxes. Yeah. And that's the issue we Well, really they've have essentially solve. executed a tax boycott. I mean, that's what they're doing. Yeah. And every time, I mean, then they constantly push in government for their taxes to be reduced so they can trickle down or whatever. Yeah. You know, oh, and shit. now we got to cut public welfare because the deficit or whatever. It's just crazy. But I mean, it's just, that's one of the things where, like, most of the time when we're talking about taxing, even businesses, like, a lot of those costs are getting passed through to consumers. And right. And, like, the really wealthy people are just, you know, making bank constantly. And, like, you know, we say Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, right? And that's because we can very clearly document where his money comes in because mm -hmm. he yeah. has a currently traded public business. But all these people, like the Kennedys and stuff, their oh, money no has idea. been hidden so long, we don't know. And, like, a lot of people suspect the richest people in the world are actually in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. The prince is there. All that probably, oil, yeah, all the, money. Yeah, there's a legitimate belief that the first trillionaire could exist in mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia right, right now. Yeah. yeah. So, that I mean, that's the, the big problem is how hidden the real problem is. Right? <laughs> Dude, yeah. So, yeah, there's talks with Kerry, John Kerry, talking before Congress, saying that, Saudi Arabia offered to foot the bill if we toppled Syria and shit like that. Like, they said literally if we did a full-on Iraq-style invasion, they'd be willing to just pay for it. Damn. That's crazy. And just use us as the imperial muscle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're just like, you're gonna... Yeah, your whole military is are now mercenaries. Holy fuck. Like yeah. They do use us in a way and they manipulate yeah, us. Yeah, they do. They, they funded a lot of the terrorism, which yeah. they got us to come over there and yeah. kill some people they didn't like. Yeah, yeah both, I mean, you know what I mean? both them and Israel have strong lobbies in the United States. Oh, yeah. For yeah. different reasons. Right, of course. But yeah, it's terrifying. Mean, the amount of weapons we trade with Saudi Arabia <laughs> we, every year is the billion. Well, right now in Yemen. Contract. I mean, we're just essentially... Helping them commit a genocide. genocide. Yeah, exactly. 
And we're not even talking about it. Now. I mean, you get a couple senators to put a bill saying, we have to stop until Congress says we can do this because it's just totally not spoken of. And they don't even bring it to the floor of Congress. And it's like, wow. wow. Because people here don't care about it. They want to just have these stupid partisan talking points yep. of like the same arguments that for the tw past 20 years, the same yep. two. Well, it's hilarious because I mean, I think the scariest things are the places where the two parties agree. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Well, that's I mean, the two parties, there's a consensus on war, there's a consensus on corporatism. You know, that all these really, oh, yeah. a lot of the really <laughs> shitty stuff. They're in agreement that they don't. Everybody loves Goldman Sachs. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you vote against Goldman Sachs in the American political system? Yeah, like Ron Paul, Bernie Sanders, yeah. like the only people I've ever seen that. That's it. Know. That's insane. That is. Um, so universal health care. We were talking. I mean, not health care. Universal health income. income. Should we start with co-ops or yeah. universal income? I'll go ahead and go with democratic co-ops since we touched it more first. Okay. Um, conversation. So, oh man, I don't even know where to start. There's so much. Okay, so the basic premise is the idea that it, you're looking for a solution to an alternative to the hierarchical, um, concentrated power aspect of capitalism. Right. So what is an alternative economic system that could work that way? So we're talking about the theory as opposed to the implementation, okay? So in terms of the theory of democratic cooperatives, um, I have, there's a lot of research on let, democratic. Let me stop you one yeah, go ahead. Second. Yeah. The, the, you're using the term democratic cooperative. Cooperative, you know, I think is, what I'm thinking of is just a generic version of cooperative that has a lot right. of different, like worker cooperative. Okay, so there's, there's like, you two. You have a specific definition that's different than Yes, and this is, this is part of the economic research on this subject too, is that there's a distinction between cooperative. So a lot of cooperatives are just collectively owned by the workers. So they all have a uh, part of the shares. So for example, um, I don't necessarily want to say which one on the podcast, but I'm employed at a, a employee owned business. Yeah. Um, but I have no say in anything that's done. So there's a difference between worker owned and worker directed. Mm. A worker directed cooperative or a democratic cooperative is one where the workers have say in how the business acts. I need you to delineate that a little more, because if the workers already own the business, right. how are they not running it? Right, time? okay. So, uh, in so for example, the business I'm part of, um, all workers own shares in the business, but the number of shares you have changes based off how long you've worked there and the position you hold. So the higher you ascend the hierarchy, the higher the percentage of shares you have, there's still a very clear management hierarchy. Um, you have no say in decision making. Theoretically, so you're you've got a meritocracy in it that where you actually have to prove you're competent. Yeah, based you off whatever equal. whatever criteria is already in place. Which yeah, is the success of the company. So yeah, sure. Uh, okay. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a hierarchical system. Um, an average employee has no say over anything that's done. They're just an employee like any other random business. The only difference is that they're going to get some stock well, options. They don't have so. any. It's not that they don't have any, because if you can go on 1% and there's right. a vote and it's 49, 40, or 50, 50, basically, yeah, you have so, 1%, so you could be the decider. You could, you could, it's just you know, less get, of a percentage of yeah. the vote than the people. In, in practice, it comes out to where the average employee never impacts the decisions that are made. Right. Just because I would say it's a good thing because the average employee doesn't know how the hell to run a business. See, and this is where you and I are going to disagree. So. And I say all evidence, though, is on my side of that, like, the average person doesn't know how to run a business. Well, we'll get into that. You're in um, the utopian state. I very much agree that in the way society is currently 
constructed, that's the case. Because well, how would you reconstruct society oh, order for everyone? Yeah. So, so okay. For example, <laughs> for example, um, I mean, the way our education system is structured right now is primarily um, oriented around creating workers that are going to function well within a capitalist economy, mm-hmm. which generally means you're going to be good at following directions. You know, that's why our our education system is very much around like following directions, taking tests, all these different things. Um, if you have an education system within a economy that's based on democratic participation in the workplace, it's going to be very different. It's going to be based around the kinds of skills you need to operate in a democratic environment. Um, and that also would present the possibility of a reciprocal relationship with the needs you have as a democratic citizen in the political system, which I think is another huge point because we don't empower people in this society to be effective democratic citizens in the political system because they're being trained how to be good capitalist workers. So if you have a democratic economy, those can be reciprocal. You're empowering people, both within the fact that they have a democratic community in their workplace, which can serve as a foundation for democratic activism in the society as a whole, but you're also training them with all the things they need to be effective democratic citizens. So let me just jump in for one second and say that then would you agree with Chris that it's probably not practical right now to implement a democratic co-op system where everyone has equal voting? Right. I I do agree with that. I think it's something that has to be kind of phased in over a long period of time and come with a lot of institutional supports and it'll become increasingly democratic over time. That's kind of my idea. It would never be just, oh, it's all democratic now. Uh, that's why I don't like you mentioned earlier, like the subsidy thing that Corbin's right. doing and stuff. Like, I don't like things that try to push it from working before it can work. Like, you see what I mean? I don't want I to like, try to start doing, like, let's dump all this money into this thing yeah. that we think sounds cool and have yeah. no evidence it's going to work right now. One well, part of their idea is that it would come with a lot of uh, support in terms of, like, people, you know, coming from cooperatives that are already up and running to come and, like, help you. Like, here's the model we use. Get on your feet. You know, to where you're, like, just a functioning business, and then you can start tinkering with shit. That kind of idea. So there would be kind of, like, that phasing in. And there's also, uh, like, you know, his idea or his, you know, idealistic idea of wanting 50% of the businesses run that way. Even if it's less than 50%. or Just a sector. Something that gives it a competitive foothold. That also brings, like, uh, some some sort of counter-argument to your idea that lots of businesses can't be run that way. And, of course, you're right in that most businesses would have a huge problem with that, especially right now. But for the... There's tons of co-ops, just to be clear. That's very different from worker-directed, which is what I'm talking about specifically. It's not very different. You think it's very different because it's your ideology. No, 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 no. The statistics. statistics. If you compare capitalism in general, like, if you get a broad spectrum of everything you can do economically right. you're in, you're in a very nuanced position between two close things Co- cooperatives in general are very related things i like your ver- version that your version better than the like version you're arguing against in a way but they're still talking about cooperatives which are still different than well i would argue majority of other systems right but i would argue that um the the really key central feature that is is the thing that makes it so radically different is the worker directed part, and so this bears out in a lot of statistics. So there was um, uh, I, I can bring up the thing. So there was this study done by a French researcher, uh, Virginie Perrotin. Okay, so she is a leading expert on the economics of employee ownership and worker cooperatives. She's been researching the topic for the better part of twenty years and has an extensive list of publications. 
in English and French, examining performance worker cooperatives. Oh, She's again. Uh, here, I'll spell it for you. V I R G I N I E, and then the last name is P E R O T I N. Uh, she's a professor of economics at Leeds University Business School since 2001. Before joining the, joining the University of Leeds, she was a senior research economist at the International Labour Office of Geneva, Switzerland. She's also held research positions at the London School of Economics and something in French I can't read. <laughs> um, a research center of the French Prime Minister's Office in Paris. She has acted as consultant to the World Bank and the OECD and the European Commission on Issues of Profit-Sharing, Employee Ownership, and Employee Involvement Schemes. She's a member of the Council of International Association of Economics and Participation and of the editorial board of the Journal of Entrepreneurial and Organizational Diversity. Okay, so anyway, so she did a huge exhaustive study where she analyzed all the different research that's been done on worker-directed enterprises. So actually where the workers have control over what's done. And there's actually thousands of them all over the world, right. but they're usually small. Right. There's a few big examples, like Mondragon is one, is the prominent example. That can do it, right. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, there's a lot of lower working, like there's a lot of people who are just working regular jobs there. A lot of it's manufacturing. They have, you know, grocery stores. They have all these different things. At the very least, it would be good to get the IQs of all of those people so that this could be like said whether or not yeah, it is so true. true. I, I didn't see any statistics on anything like that, but I know it's it's just a lot of just regular workers. And yeah. so a lot of the different policies they have in place, just to give an example of what they've voted into legislation within their business. So um, they first of all, one of the biggest problems with cooperatives is funding because banks they don't they're not familiar with this. They and want a lot. return on the investment. They, they want to return on the investment. They're much more familiar with this than you think because they're economists that have spent their whole life studying this, and they know that this is very risky. That's why they don't yes. fund it, not because they just don't okay. like the ideology or have never heard but of it. But it's also something where it's it's very difficult to get funding for this kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It makes okay. a risky business. Um, so, so anyway, they've created their own internal bank. So Mondragon Corporation actually has its own bank where part of their collective resources go into that bank so they can fund their own things. So they have their own bank, they have their own labs, which do such good research that GM and I think Microsoft, yeah, Microsoft and GM send researchers to their labs. Um, they have a rule where you can't do any one repetitive task for more than two hours. At two hours, you switch with someone else. So everyone learns different tasks within it, so no one's doing the same repetitive shit over and over. Um, to deal with income inequality, they have a rule where the top paid person in the company cannot make more than eight times what the lowest person is paid. So you're going to cap out at eight times entry-level wages. And so in order for the top person to make any more, you're going to have to raise wages as a whole. Familiar with yeah. It's okay. not just part of coffers. Um, they have their own university, and their majors include engineering, humanities, business studies, and gastronomic science. Um, and <laughs> any, any like, uh, like the kids of people who work there can go to the university for free. Um, most of the employees are second or third generation now, so a lot of this is like, you know, their kids are going into it because it was such a good job for their parents, stuff right. like that. Um, and it's the seventh largest corporation in Spain, and it was it's founded just, in 1956. That's true. That's true. I get you. <laughs> Being a little derisive here. Yeah, even a little bit. It's, this is just... I don't like systems like this. I understand. I understand. I That's fine. But, but try to be like a little more respectful. Yeah, I guess not. The reason I get argument. frustrated is because I know a lot of the economics and a lot of people have opinions because they learn one specific piece of economics and they thought I get it sounded you. cool. But they don't have the broad picture of like, 
And especially when you say things like, or imply that economists and people in positions that have studied this for years, not me, but like the people at the banks making decisions, that they don't know, they just don't know that this works. Like, these people have spent a lot more time than you studying these things. I understand, but also this is one of the least, one of the things talked about in this, uh, this study was that this is one of the least researched forms of economic model currently that exists. I mean, there was a lot of research done on it after the fall of, of the Soviet Union because there was a lot of cooperatives that popped up after that. But, I mean, it's something that's gotten very little attention in terms of actual, like, statistical study. I mean, that's kind of a weird statement that, like, there's an infinite number of economical models. So to say that one is less prevalent than the other, I could find you a model that nobody's ever heard of here before. I mean, I agree it's not I'm well just saying it's not very well study. known. A lot of things aren't well researched. I 100% yeah. agree we should research it. Totally. Don't get me wrong there. We right. should research a lot more economic. Anyway, I'm saying I wouldn't be surprised if people at banks who decide whether to put out loans They're are not very familiar that with this. they have. Okay, right. that's my point. I agree right. we need more research. My whole real point here is we need more research before we say, let's right. just implement this in society because totally. it sounds cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. All The only point I was trying to make earlier was that it's hard for these to get funded. Okay. Right. So so there's um, Which would one example is like, there's, right. so in Italy, they have a rule where uh, when you get unemployment, so they, they have a big uh, policy to benefit worker cooperatives. Um, so they have a rule where if you have unemployment, you can choose either to get that doled out over a period of time, like unemployment usually is, or you can choose to get it all up front as a lump sum on the condition that you've got nine other unemployed people to agree to do the same thing on the condition that you're going to create a, a democratic worker cooperative together. So that's another way they've done to try and encourage that. Um, so there's all these different kinds of policies. So anyway, the research about democratic cooperatives, it had a lot of really interesting uh, statistics on the ones that exist. So, for example, let's see. Um, so, worker-managed firms show that they have either equivalent or an increase in productivity to uh, traditional capitalist firms. And they were able to show that the worker ownership is not the decisive factor here. It's actually the worker management. And um, I could go into the language actually used in the study, but it's just essentially stuff that, like, you know, people having a stake in the decision-making and actually having some say gives them more buy-in and all that different stuff. Um, let's see. Annual investment always is at least as large or higher than in traditional capitalist institutions. They're not uh, just, like, taking it off the top. They're investing it back in the company at, at least the same or higher levels. Um, there's two main critiques among economists that they worry about with democratic cooperatives. One is... Under, and so these are both addressing why are they not more prevalent, if they're more productive, these kinds of things. Um, one of them is underinvestment or self-extinction, which is the idea that members are going to sell off their collectively owned shares for short-term profit. Um, so the solutions that some of them have put in place to stop that from happening that can deal with that problem is uh, to make only that part of the capital is owned individually with limits on returns. And the rest is owned collectively and something they can't take from. So it's seen of, as if the business itself is kind of a public good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like you're not, you can't cannibalize it. It's something that's going to be there. You get small amounts that you can take out of it individually, but no one can just sell off the whole thing itself. Um, and then the other thing is degeneration in a capitalist firm. So there have been some examples where what they're going to do is have uh, an increasing percentage of their employees are non-members. So they're hiring people who don't have the democratic rights within the institution. There's the group that does, and they're hiring temporary employees that don't. 
And so another concern is over time, they're going to hire more and more people as non-members until eventually you have a small group at the top who controls right. it. And it's essentially a capitalist institution again. Um, so ideas that, again, some have put into place to stop this is things like limiting how many non-members you can have or uh, creating something where, you know, you can have non-members, but after six months of employment, they receive membership. Mm -hmm. And something where, like, you know, for the first six months, they're paying part of their income into it as, like, a due. It's almost like a comp combining of union and business into one entity. Does that make sense? Yeah. That kind of idea. I mean, that's generally the idea of co-ops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the statistics are showing that there's no productivity problem. There's no long-term investment problem. The real problem is them getting a foothold within a capitalist environment. And so I think... I think you make a jump there because that's not necessarily a problem. It could be that the way that they're doing now is good and they just need to grow slowly from their current base and prove that the model works. Maybe so. Maybe you know, so. It's not that we need to say that they're oppressed somehow and we've got to do all this stuff to help grow this model that we don't... We have evidence that in its current state, it works fine. We have no evidence that if we try to blow it up, that it's going to keep those same statistics. That's sorry. That, I was no, just going to say that is kind of the thing, though, with crony capitalism that it does inherently. I'm not defending crony capitalism. Just because I'm saying one system is wrong doesn't mean I'm advocating that our current system. Right. Is wrong. No, I, I understand. I'm just saying that in this system that we currently have, it's difficult to implement different systems because that's kind of a core principle of crony capitalism is that they sort of muscle out other yeah. styles. And so the and argument so in the realm of crony capitalism is that you have to provide supports and subsidies to get it on its own feet yeah. and then allow it to compete. And you know, if it fails, it fails. But there's no way for it to get that foothold in that kind of... large scale, I'd rather see it work more on the small scale. See what I'm saying? Like crony capitalism. Well, at what level of the small scale small is it big business. enough to to validate you wanting to give it a foothold? I just want to see big... more than like a grocery store in my local city. Like, I, I mean, want, there's I hundreds of thousands of them across the world. I know. I, I just. At what level would it then be okay to move it up to the next level to you? Again, to me, it's just or is this just kind of like a general skepticism? One of the well, one of the ideas. I that need evidence. Be... Like you just you have all these like I really think it would work. Well, he was also citing some studies that have been done about it. Right, but they're not... It's it's that idea, though, that you're taking... Like, okay, the, the thing earlier with the, the waters rising, right, right, in North Carolina. We can't just look at the historical data of water rising to predict what the hell's going to happen because there's too many other factors involved. It's a way bigger scale than just look at this little data point that it happened to do this at, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying I hate every part of libertarian... Like, I, I lean towards left libertarian ideas myself, right. okay? I'm not... Like, I don't know, like I said, I have a strange, I don't follow any, I think it's wrong to align yourself with an ideology, personally, because it puts you into a dogmatic well, thinking. See, that's the thing, is I like, I didn't really get these ideas from a particular ideology. Like, Chomsky talks a little about this, and I agree well, with him on a lot of his political is points. He major figure of this ideology. Well, yeah, but that's the thing, is I didn't even get this idea from Chomsky. I mean, he actually talks about it very little. He talks about some, just kind of the general idea of workers controlling their own workplace. But, I mean, this ideology, this idea of democratic cooperatives, I got mainly from a combination of, like, thinking about how do you institute a real institutional form of democratic um, activity within the society, thinking of, like, Cicero, that thing. And then um, the economist, my favorite economist, Richard Wolff, talks a lot about this, um, the idea of democratic cooperatives. And it's part of this group called Democracy at Work that's all about 
kind of like shedding light on any research on this and advocating for it as, you know, we should create a democratic sector in the economy to see if it works better or not, that kind of thing. Um, One of the issues, too, I have with a lot of economic models is that they're very based on the past and particularly 20th century ideas of the economy. None of these things have any idea how to account for AI. That was actually that's very true. I was going to bring up. And so, like, what I want to say again, just to be very clear, because, like, there may be other ideologies I've criticized. I don't want you to think that just because I'm criticizing socialism that I hate it. I do think, though, that we need to examine every ideology with the most critical lens, and in particular, not try to implement things without the best evidence we can get. Because, again, we, particularly economic systems, we've seen all over the world, when people try to make radical changes without strong evidence, and that's why, you know, we don't need to just have this at the, like, people like Chomsky, who aren't economists, talking about this. I want to see it mainstream economists start, and there are some economists. I mean, Richard Wolff has... PhD in I know econ- PhD economics in and history from Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. I'm not saying so. that there's not good people that are doing stuff yeah. like this. So I'm saying though the mainstream, the whole, but the mainstream thing. itself is based in a bubble. I mean, you absolutely right. cleanse the education in, in right. economics of any doubt the, of the capital. idea that you think is the best. Like, I mean, people make the same argument for communism or anarcho, you know, anarcho-communism and anarcho-capitalism and right. every other utopian system. You can put on paper and say, look at all these facts. This is clearly going to work. And if you say that it didn't work here, it's because they just didn't do it quite right. And you didn't think of this one thing that's like the essential feature of it. And once you do it this way, it's fine. See, but this isn't even a utopian. It's still a market. It's still businesses, just like we have can, now. That it's simply mean, a difference in to do with the... Markets. Austrian economics is a purely free market system that is utopian. That is not... To say that communism is associated, but this isn't even this isn't even some rat something that's like a radically outside the box thing compared to what we have now. You're just literally changing the power structure within the business. That to say rather, it's that's a radical change in terms you of that power. The term earlier that you thought we needed. Right? No, no, I mean it's it's not like you're completely throwing out the system we have and having a totally new one. You're changing the power relation within the institutions that already exist. Right, but so it's not is, like going from capitalism changing. to communism. That yeah. is, and, though. That's literally what communism is: is the change of power systems. You take the power, but you're, from the it's not from within from the, the institution. You're taking government, which is its own separate institution, well, and giving it power would, over communists things. Communists would argue that the correct version of communism does not use. I know, but I'm talking about communism as it actually manifested in the real world. Right. Which is what I'm saying is the difference between your ideology too is that communism has this cool version that you can say is going to work, and then when you put it in the world, it doesn't work. And that's what I'm afraid is going to happen if we try to large-scale implement libertarian socialism, is that when we actually put it into practice, there's pieces, just like communism, that the communists didn't think of, that is going to cause disruption, that could cause things like the collapse of Venezuela. Maybe not to the same degree, because obviously Venezuela didn't even go communist. They had a, too rapid, but still a, Stepwise transition to socialism. It's not even like they rapidly changed. They tried no, something. So a lot of like capitalist businesses and stuff, but well, yes, but they also are collapsing because they have they are. control of everything. Like, well, a huge of part of that was that their whole economy was based off oil, and then the oil right. prices and, tanked, well, and they seized the oil. Yeah, and then pump, the oil yeah, prices. They nationalized, and then they started the nationalizing more industries yeah. as a way to compensate. But I'm not arguing for any form of nationalization of any kind. I'm not, I know that. that my point it's is not totally that. Different. My point is that just because you think that this thing works on paper really well 
billions of people through history taught that much more brilliant right. people but you can, in this you room can, have thought of it. You can Karl make Marx that argument in general about any alternative system. Yes, I am making that argument right. about any alternative system. That's why I'm saying we have to have data, research, and evidence before we move forward. Yeah, but forward. you can't do to... that until you give it some kind of realistic foothold in the economy. <sighs> to a degree, but I would say there is some... And that's all I'm arguing for. Okay, but like... That's fine. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying be careful as to like not have a system where every time a business sells, everybody can turn it into a co-op. Like why not? Because that's too extreme. That means that like the where would be that, where would be a good level in your point of view to give this a something more like on the universal income where we say okay, well let's have one little state fund a project in like one city where we like do one business or something like you don't have to do a massive scale. Of We're talking about a big business because there's lots of little businesses already like this, I'm just and saying, we show start that they at do a work. Smaller scale with the experiment. Don't start with like a country in the European Union. Well, the whole country. Well, it's not in the European Union. Which country was it again? <laughs> Britain. Has <laughs> 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 Brexit even gone through all the way yet? Uh, it's, it's still in the works. Yeah, I think technically they are still. Uh, but, but either way, your point's valid. Well, the other thing that is a problem with that though is that one of your criticisms of this is that it doesn't scale well. And so if you try little you experiments... you can't just try to scale it and hope it works. Well, I, I understand that, but it's also like how do you study... You stepwise. How do you study how well it scales if you're not willing to let it scale at all? You know, you're trying to advocate for a small implementation Okay, do you know, so it. let's talk about how empirical data is collected and studied, right? Yeah. We have to have it controlled so we can say, okay, let's try different companies, have a control company. These two companies are competing in the same industry. Right. Let's see what happens when we do this model versus this model. We need control data. Not just, we changed everything. Let's see if it collapsed or not. Okay, so that's what I'm advocating for is a really scientific approach about this. I think there's a really logical way to go about it, and I appreciate that. And I would very much advocate for what at whatever level is seen as slow enough for us to create a sector where these exist in the economy to give them enough of a foothold where they're at a competitive level in an economy that we've all acknowledged is fairly rigged already. So that's a difficult question. At what level... You know, are they in a strong enough position where they can compete in the economy that actually exists? And that's why I'm more in favor of this kind of scaling up. I know it's ambitious and risky, but I mean, it's not like you're giving authoritarian institutions control over businesses. Worst case scenario is these businesses fail. And if the business was already going to go to China, it's not like... assuming it's going to work like it is on paper. It's possible that like the... I'm just saying I want to try. I'm I'm saying I want to try too. I want to try... Slowly and carefully, right. not let's just run forward and hope it works. This would be a philosophical difference because I do see just in terms of whether it's you know what's AI going to look like in the hands of you know an economic system and the power distribution that currently exists, right. or with climate change coming up. I am I do tend to be more in favor of more radical solutions given the existential threats coming towards us. Right. So be careful not to create that's true. further existential threat. That's true. But I think the worst, I think really, if you're talking about giving workers control of your own businesses, the worst thing that can really happen is the business fails. You're not going to have... That's pretty a, bad, though. That's bad. A large scale. Don't that's get me wrong. the Great Depression. Don't get me wrong. That's bad. And so you, you want to talk about, you know, what sectors of the economy is this safe to try in? That's a good one, too. Yeah, and exactly. what size of business is? Exactly. But this is very different. It's a totally different animal than saying, let's give governments control of businesses. Because well, now no, you're I risking agree. tyranny. Yeah, I agree completely. We're on the same Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I, I'm less stressed about more rapidly scaling this up. Because I think it has less risks involved 
than something like government control. Yeah. That scares the shit out of me. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with that. Okay, yeah, we're on the same okay. page there. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think just to clarify some of those things, like the, the biggest debate I see between the two of you here is that you like a, a, a speed and size of implementation. Right. And so, which when you really get down to it, is it, a pretty good place to be at. For sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I, I think that you have a valid point about there, there needing to be some study at least, or like a lot of thought put into what size and speed and location and what types are, of business are, you know, right. actually valid because like you say, it's hard to control for all these variables yeah. in a system that we have right now. And so like, it's very important that we're thinking about that and, and we don't want to scale it up to the point where like an extreme failure could cause, you know, cascading problems in the economy, which I, I'm assuming is one of the biggest things you're worried exactly. about. But uh, obviously you can't say like, you can't, run an experiment where you're not controlling for those variables either and then ex assume that it's representative of how it could function. You know, if you put them as a small business, for instance, like say some business that wants to compete with YouTube comes up and they're like, well, let's try a democratic co-op there. And it's like, okay, well, if they're, you know, a hundred thousand people even trying to compete with YouTube, like as a startup, they're going to fail. It doesn't yeah. matter who runs it, right? And so, I mean, well, YouTube is almost support, a monopoly. So exactly. yes. And I would support if the government or something wanted to attempt like a single experiment like that and say we're going to give a subsidy to this company to try that. I'd be, I'd be totally on board with a, a one-off or like right. a very well thought out yeah. series of experiments in yes. particular. That's what I want to see, and not just a blanket policy that's and, like let's yeah. push this down your throat. I think that's an interesting question or an interesting. Uh, thing to talk about in general is you know we shouldn't we should be doing that kind of thing with multiple systems we should yeah, be trying different things and seeing you know can these things work mm -hmm. and and you know one thing that's interesting about economic research today is that we can do similar we can do that type of thing in micro economies that are created in video games totally so, like uh, you know Eve Online has a ton of professional economists studying right. it and also managing it which I think is really crazy and awesome it's really cool and yeah. so I think you know funding research that works like that and then trying to take what we learn from those things and implement them in you know the real economy in, in yeah, the ways that you're talking about i think is a really great idea yeah, yeah there's tons of game economies that are like that that like people were legit like you can if you're in business school you could write a paper on a game economy that's, that's so cool what you're thinking <laughs> they're massive like, i feel like like games like wow and stuff oh too, yeah just like i feel like the kinds of like ai simulation things we're going to be able to run when ai gets better to yeah. test things that don't have to exist in the real world mm -hmm. is going to get like so much more sophisticated it's going to be a trouble oh, for sure, yeah. Um, but just some other kind of like ancillary benefits in terms of like the theory. So, I mean, there's certainly issues in terms of where and how fast to implement. Right. Totally. Um, in terms of like the broader benefits in the hypothetical case that this succeeds. So, I mean, you know, there's that political problem, which is that you're more capable of having a democratic political system if you have a reciprocal relationship with the economic system. If you have a democratic economy, people not only have a democratic foundation of community members where they're interacting democratically amongst themselves on which to ground their democratic activism, they're getting all the training, the education, and how to organize in that way, how to think in that way and interact in that way. And then on top of that, you have a lot of the big problems of capitalism that this could potentially deal with. So the inequality, things like passing that initiative, almost all democratic cooperatives pass something like that thing Mondragon has, where they make that income gap. Right. Exactly. And then things like um, you know, environmental degradation, people are far less likely to choose within their business 
to destroy the environment or pollute the environment around them if they're the people that live in this environment. You know, you've got all these chemical companies in Louisiana and stuff that just destroy the bayous and like all these places and the workers feel shitty about it, but they need the work. Right. You know, and you're not going to have a business that sells off and moves to China. If the workers have to vote, do you think we should lose our jobs and move the business to China? They're going to vote no. <laughs> so, I mean, some of our biggest problems right now, inequality, deindustrialization, and climate change, this has huge positive implications to deal with a lot of the problems we face and the lack of political sovereignty. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of big potentialities. I'm curious as to, like, your take on the education system in relation to that. Like, so, this is actually... That would, what would you do with the education system? Okay. Um, so, this is actually... Before we go to that, I want to see, did you have anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, to get in there, Drew. About... The I'm stoked to talk about that though, because actually thinking about ed democratic education, I thought of before I got into economics, because I started off from an interest in Athens and Rome oh, and education at, in terms of my history interest. Mm -hmm. So that's actually what led me down this, is how do we get an education system okay. that is huh. democratic in nature? But anyway, go ahead, Drew. Yeah, I mean, I do, once, once Dan did bring up the idea of like the you have to be able to teach people for like the economic system that we'd be working in. And since it is like democratic, the, the jobs would be democratic. It does seem like really cool that like to imagine people who like, they go to work and think this way and then they go out and then they're chatting with their friends and then they talk about like politics and they know every single little like trick that you have to pull. Like, are you thinking about this? Are you thinking about this? Kind of like in, it also improves like scientific thinking, I think like rational and like, like critical thinking just because that I feel like is necessary in democracy if you really want your business to continue. It should be necessary. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, if you, you want your... It's like an actual necessary... Well, if you want your business to continue, well, I feel yeah. like it has to. I think it's, right. I think it's yeah. necessary for a democracy to actually flourish. I think right. That's yes. Exactly. Yes. It's kind of like an institutional prerequisite to a, a good functioning yeah. Yes. I mean, that's part of the problem is we have an education system meant to facilitate an authoritarian economic system which kind of cripples our capacity as democratic citizens in a political system, you know? So my idea of an education system, and I'm by no means an expert on how this would go. I mean, we'd need research on, you know, what education systems work best to facilitate all this. But I mean, I would draw a lot of inspiration from the thoughts in ancient Athens, talking about how you don't educate people based off just giving them knowledge and memorization of facts. You give them the capacities to learn for themselves, to question things. Things like, you know, teaching them big topics like logic, ethics, yeah. rhetoric, you know, physics. The, kind of like the core things that make you a, you know, a functioning, you know, liberated individual. And I think that is very in line with American values as well. You know, and kind of the aspirations of America. And what that kind of individual liberty is supposed to be. Yeah. The whole Western tradition. And so I think there's a lot of potential there to really liberate the individual and the human experience as well as create a better world for, you know, that we live in. Um, so I think education would be based a lot less on memorization, a lot more on building up the characteristics of the individual, a lot more on debate and um, collective action and to question things and individual sovereignty and just all of that. We're 100% on the same page. Yeah, and, and that's where I started off. Because I was starting off going, why is our education system not making us that way? Yeah. And go, oh, well, you know, business interests really affect how our education system works mm -hmm. in each era to create the kind of workers they want. Right. And so now it becomes an economic problem and a political problem. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really how my line of thinking got to democratic cooperatives, was starting off with, why aren't we educated like the Athenians? Why aren't we all these things we claim we're supposed to be? (laughs) So that's really the roots of where I'm at. One of the things that also comes to mind when, like, for, like, studies, because now I'm thinking about, like, different kind of researching for, like, Madrigal and other co-ops like that, is I would be really interested to see, like, how depression and anxiety is, like, compared to the rest of the population in, like, Spain for Madrigal. Because I would like to see, obviously, you'd have to correlate it with, like, IQ and stuff like that. But um, the the interesting thing to me is that I feel like a lot of people are, like, either depressed or anxious about things that they can't do anything about now. There's a lot of, like, existential that may not even be existential, like, to the point of all of humanity, but individually existential. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That they, that they feel like they can't do anything to help their country, basically. It's like they don't, or at least they don't know. So what they do is, again, they, like, simplify make it so that they're day-to-day, right? Rather than long, tra- like, trajectory kind of stuff. And if you did have an outlet where, at work, you knew that you had that, you knew that, yeah, maybe, okay, I don't get to decide what, like, the big policies are in America. Maybe I don't get to choose if my, like, if the army goes to war or whatever. You know, it's like, then at least you get to have that outlet at work. Mm-hmm. And, like, I would be interested if that declines the, the kind of anxiety and depression that, that comes along with it. So I to one other kind of question regarding hmm. that. Like, I wonder if you've seen any criticism in this area as far as, like, because I did mention sort of, like, it divulging into a capitalist thing. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like, it's almost like every company would be, like, a mini-government. Yeah, exactly. sort of, like a small... Di- and that's one of the really interesting things is we know democracy works best on small scale. Right, but what I'm wondering is what if one company got too big with that model and scaled and essentially became right. a corrupt government? Yeah, <laughs> that's, interesting. that's um, interesting. I don't really have uh, I haven't put enough thought into that to have a good answer um, I think I still think overall the economy would be far less corrupt than the one we have now even if there are examples of that um, because I mean at least there's that accountability to your employees especially if they have another layer of oversight between actual government right and exactly and, and you know what a tyrannical company is not as dangerous as a tyrannical government I mean Depends we have tyrannical companies already, company. too. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think those are dangerous. Check out that Harari talk after this, because he okay. mentions in that, because at the end they asked the, the dude, I can't remember his name, the Ted guy, he like asked him a couple questions. He's like, so, you know, you talk about how companies have the data and stuff. Shouldn't we be more worried about governments concentrating our data because they're harder to overthrow? Oh, he was like, no, 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 no. He was like, whoever has the data is your real government. It yep. doesn't matter exactly. if whatever yep. company has I agree it, completely. So. Yeah, so the, the, yes. Also, the idea that companies can literally be in how many different countries at one time. Yeah. They get, affect, yeah, they get affect as many politics <laughs> right. as they want. That's Still, so I would true. much prefer a business that's at least democratically accountable to its own employees to have my data I would than say, a company that just has like a board of directors and CEOs. No, I would say there's at least a layer of accountability. Very difficult to get to that level with this just because of the individual like resilience of every single person. Hope, at least. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think like the Nazi Empire, so there are conditions. That no, true. 100%. Yeah, that's 
one of the things I worry about is like the conditions that could put pressures that we don't think right. about. And there's gonna be a lot of problems. I mean, it's just like it. when capitalism emerged out of feudalism. Yeah, there was a lot of problems they didn't foresee, and it was right. very well, dirty and messy. But I also think it's that was actually cool because you can actually you would see that there would be like the pushback against like if the co-ops came up, there would be pushback from the capitalists, and then that would actually force them to be like, well, this is why we're better, or this right. is why we're worse. Yeah. Same with the, the same with the feudalism. Well, and as much as I agree with you in that point you made earlier about like banks not necessarily oh. like trying to keep down the little guy. However, there are specifically with uh, cooperative banks, the big banks has actually pushed through legislation to try and make it much more difficult for cooperative banks to get a foothold. But that's a direct competitor, so that makes more sense. I'd be curious, what what is the difference between a cooperative, cooperative bank and a credit union? I think it's. I think credit union is a type. Okay, yeah. I, I do. Pretty prolific. Depends on what part of the country. You're in. Well, I think there's something that stops them from getting that. to like. I, I don't know the well, actual. Most of them actually limit their own growth on purpose because they don't want right. to turn into these giant. The big banks. fucking yeah, yeah so, for sure. Right, and a lot of and they it's nice because you, you actually a lot of times get better interest rates and stuff. You really, the credit union is the shit. Do you yeah, see it yeah. also? Just, I divested from Bank of America to go to a credit union during the whole Dakota Access Pipeline thing. Uh, so just cool. the fact that that is a thing that's been shown to happen that moral imperative taking over like an economic imperative where they're literally just like i'm gonna put a cap on my growth like what when have you heard that from like a capitalistic like straight capitalistic something yeah just being so there's a couple other benefits i hadn't mentioned yet um so a part of the study showed that they, they analyzed how these democratic cooperatives responded to the economic crashes and it was really interesting because what they did was almost across the board rather than firing people they all collectively agreed to lower their wages as a whole and to kind of like weather it, making a smaller income until the crisis was over. They put all the emphasis on keeping their jobs, even if it wasn't paying much. And then as soon as the economy got better, they increased the wages again. That's so it, cool. showed, it showed it had more versatility in terms of good. weathering stuff like that because they think as a community. It's not a business that sees its workers as human capital. Right. So there's this kind of like core incentive thing where current capitalist businesses, their primary thing one at the top is profit. And workers are seen in some ways as very much as one of the main liabilities to profit, even though they generate it because they're one of the huge costs. So a lot of capitalist institutions are trying to lay off workers to save costs, to automate, to get rid of the workers if they can. Whereas in a democratic cooperative, the jobs are number one. And profit would be a slightly lower incentive which is a necessary incentive to keep the jobs, but it would never supplant the job as the core motive, mm -hmm. which I think is a much healthier model because it's a system that serves the people in it sure. I agree primarily. I think one of the big issues with it is that we mentioned earlier, the AI issue. Just thinking yeah. about that, it's like, you know, jobs. We're basing yeah. all this around the idea of jobs, but those are about to all be gone in the next 50 years. Well, let's check yeah. this out. Another <laughs> weird question that could happen. I thought about this too. In a co-op would be, do we want to make everything AI? Well, the issue with that, though, is they that could you have to them. do that in a wholly democratic co-op system, then. And because if one company does, then they're, then you're, they're, they're not Well, unless, you. my idea would be, so Madrigal, well, okay, or easier one to think about is Google. It's like Google has how many, like, things they do for their employees. Like, they have, like multiple different like types of food you can get where they're like classified differently depending on health and shit like that they have masseuses they have like restrooms they have like 
all of these different types of things that if you look at it, you're like, wait a minute, that's just like, I think every human should probably have that and they would be happy if we all did that kind of organization. And then you get to see that, like, and this is, how, that's how I kind of like view universities should be run, run the same way as Google and we kind of got to that point the other night. But it's like, the idea would be that you have like, it doesn't matter now all of like what's happening on the outside, like if there's a bunch of companies that are running by AI because your system works so well with the people who are with you that it will it'll work as its own government it'll be like its own economy unless you yeah. literally then get people who are physically fucking with you and then i mean now well, you this, have like this war, is an right? interesting question so like i mean if you're a part of a democratic cooperative what do you think you're going to decide to do if you know the potential to automate or to automate most of your work comes about yeah. i mean i think a lot of them would probably decide to you know have these robots do most of the work and just not have your pay change, and you just get more time off. Like, I think I think it'd be a lot more leisure time in a world where so the AI like, is in the hands of democratic right. workplaces. I feel like it's Dwight's point, though, of, like, if everybody did that, that'd be awesome. But right, but in a world, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, now we're trying to get into utopian, because this is pretty yeah. a lot of variables. Right. But my AI ideal world cool. would be one where AI is doing all the menial labor in the world, mm -hmm. and the only businesses that exist are ones for human service and enrichment, and they're all run democratically by the workers. Yeah. If that's purely utopian, but we're talking on a right. very that's theoretical level. Nice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this is a really good segue. I into, <laughs> a really good segue into the, one of the other things that we want to talk about. we got about a half an hour left, so um, we can really get into this a little bit, is that um, like the idea of universal basic income and the effect right. of AI in the future and what sorts of uh, economy, economic models and government models can work in that type of society. Um, yeah. And so I would I would pose to the group, you know, what what let's start with what do you guys think about UBI, like just in general. Yeah, um, I have a few yeah. different thoughts on this. I think Elon Musk made a really good point about um, so there's the risk of de incentivizing people to go get a job uh -huh. if you have universal basic income, especially if you'll lose it if you start making X amount of money. Definitely. So Musk's idea was never have anyone lose it. No matter how much you get, you still get your basic income. So that's just kind of the floor. And then people are going to decide how much they want to better their lives. And they'll yeah. know there's no other variable. I think. And I think that's a really good idea. I agree. I mean, to call it universal basic income and then have it be lost in some cases is kind of a misnomer. I yeah, I think that's pretty stupid. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's ideas about it replacing essentially the whole rest of the welfare state. I think that's an interesting idea. Um Makes me a little nervous. Uh, have you heard Yang's idea mm -hmm. for that? So what he wants to do, if, if he got elected, could implement it, would be to try to replace the welfare state sort of slowly as an right. opt-in model. So essentially you could keep whatever benefits you have now, or you can just take the $1,000. That's there. better. Yeah. That's good. I, I don't like the idea of getting rid of it entirely. Right. It scares me. Yeah, um, there's too many people dependent on it to just have a system. Yeah, again, that, that kind of idea of that yeah, quick turnover. Have, yeah. Um, but I, I definitely think it's a good idea like to, to try and incentivize people to switch yeah so that over the right. course of you know a decade or, or more we're starting to yeah get to the point where we could eliminate it feasibly without too much shock i think universal income is a good idea um i still center my views on democratic cooperatives even in a world where there is universal income because from my perspective one of the central problems in society is um the concentration of wealth and power specifically power and so 
another ancillary benefit of this democratic cooperative model is it really is a political attack on the the control that wealth has on the political system. The more of the economy that can be inhabited by democratic cooperatives, you know, the less of that wealth will have a monopoly on its ability to buy the government. You know, if democratic cooperatives are buying the government to do things, because the government's just corrupt still, but it's taking money from democratic cooperatives, I think that's much more likely to serve the interests of the people than, you know, these Goliath hierarchical institutions. Obviously, I'd like money to get out of politics entirely, I but I think it's, a, it's an improvement in terms of it serving the people. Yeah. People will try to serve their own interests. So that's like what we have with it's the partisan issue right now. Yeah. Like Even businesses. Yeah, you know, if a Christian co-op got control, they might just yeah. vote to lobby the yeah. government. For or an oil co-op might still do shit yeah. about climate change. Try, yeah. yeah, try to deny yeah. climate change. Don't give me... We really need more CO2. Let's check this out. <laughs> and that's why I'm saying that this is not a utopian idea. Yeah. There's real issues that still exist that are connected to the issues we face now. I just think it's a it's a massive improvement. But I, I really do think that that authoritarian hierarchical structure of society is the thing we need to get rid of. Because I think in a post-AI world, you're going to have China or something like China, which is going to take this full authoritarian. And I think the only way to counterweight that, to create still a sanctuary in the global civilization that is based on individual liberty and freedom and democratic interaction with one another is going to be if we create that like like now like before that kind of authoritarian arms race starts because i think america is starting to go well i'm afraid i'm losing my top at the heap of the hill and so I'm going to start doing the, that scary authoritarian shit because I'm afraid of losing top dog status. I'm really worried we're going in an authoritarian direction. And I think radical democratization of our institutions may become increasingly necessary to guard against this kind of post-AI dystopia that is at least manifesting in what is going to become the most powerful country on the planet. Yeah, that is scary for sure. What do you have to say about that, Drew? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that's pretty... I think that's true. I don't know, like, the idea that any more democracy in our country would be bad, I don't think is... I think that anyone would disagree with that. Like, if we could find any there places are people where we can... Okay, yeah. Well, against authoritarianism. How about that? Like, any more democracy... Everyone would agree except the authoritarians. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, In which case, if your argument is, I want to be one of the oligarchs, I say, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, I mean, you could... you Like, I think it does come down to group dynamics, and at least, like, it would be, like, in democratic co-ops, it would at least infuse the idea of group dynamics. Because I feel... Like, that's another really big, like, psychological issue that we have nowadays is, like, a lot of people feel like an individual who's trying to get as much as they can from the system that's trying to fuck them. Certainly in America. Yeah, sure. exactly. And that's, I guess that's what I'm, yeah. yeah, mostly talking about. So, the idea that there is also this place where you have to do, you, there's, there's, like, not profit, profit isn't the number one thing, you know, the number at the end isn't the number one thing, you can still have that human interaction and that, like, that compassion that can come just from maybe yeah maybe you're not like 
an Einstein, but people will still keep you around because you make them laugh every once in a while. And maybe, you know, maybe that actually does help you work to work more. You know, maybe that doesn't have a dollar value in the profit, but maybe, you know, maybe it just makes you feel better as a person and you don't have to do as much healthcare or stuff like that. I feel like there's a lot of psychological values that are not incorporated into our economic system. And I feel like this could probably help. Hopefully, yeah, I think, I think and, it'd be an improvement for and, sure. And the, I think one of the biggest of things, things, the biggest things in authoritarian governments seem to me as they try to objectify every psychological thing, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like, the basic premise would, you know, is that everyone's an object in that authority. Yeah, government. I mean, it's called human capita in economics, right. you know, that, that's dehumanizing in and of itself. So, so um, yeah. Oh, what was I going to say? Anyway, I'll think of it again. Uh, I was also wondering what you had to say about uh, PBI. Oh, the universal, well, for me, that, I think it seems obvious, even if you're, if you're just looking at the, like, structure of what it takes to be a human being, like, on this planet. <laughs> I think it's really important that, for some reason, like, that we take into consideration that if we have the values that people, like, deserve to be living on this planet, like, if they're alive, they were brought into this world, and, like, they deserve to at least be living then we like that is i feel like that's necessary to it, there needs to be at least like some resources given to those people if not an income for them to acquire those resources and so i think that for us to really be like unless someone obviously commits a crime that makes it way more dead let's like you know you could get into whether you think about capital punishment and stuff like that like at least you can talk about a criminal but like to say that there's a person on that comes into this world who doesn't have enough resources to live or to live like a life that we know would probably make them into a better person that, that we haven't like just admitted that and have somehow incorporated that into our system in a very like substantial way. I think that's irresponsible. And I think that's I just agree. like, yeah, uh, it brings up the uh, thing that Jordan Peterson talks about when he talks about IQ is that the army, it's illegal to induct anyone in the army that has an IQ of less than 83. Mm. Which is about ten percent of the population, yeah. and so we're assuming we're he's, he equates that to basically saying if the army can't find a job for you, then there's probably no job in society for you. So totally. there's at least very few, totally. which means that ten percent of the population basically cannot be used for anything as far as the economy is concerned. Exactly. And so then know, it's a matter of our morals. Does that mean we take care exactly. of the vulnerable, or does exactly. that mean we right. sacrifice them? And the interesting thing that AI brings to the table when we're talking about this is that that IQ of 83 is only going to grow. Yeah. Like, it's only going to go up and up and up until, you know, the IQ of 145 is barely enough to get you a job, you know, and that's genius level right now. So it's like... Well, I wonder if that's going to be relative, because... Let's hope well, that our maybe intelligence not. increases. Because maybe it's like, you know, your intelligence needs to be so high in relation to the other people you're interacting with, so that scale <laughs> is just going to keep going up. Yeah, like maybe be. maybe a 145 IQ is going to be just a worthless soldier in a world where the average soldier is a 250, you know? So, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. But um, uh, the other thing I was going to say is, yeah, I aside from universal basic income, because I think there's nothing to stop universal basic income from existing in dystopian China. So I don't think it addresses the problem of authoritarianism that is on the rise, which is why I'm still focused on democratic cooperatives, because I'm trying to answer that question. How do we keep a free society? Um, but another thing, just like as an idea of um, a business that might be good to transition to, to, to the democratic model, think of news, think of journalism, think of the media. Yeah. 
Imagine a publicly funded but internally democratically run media. I mean, it's just fascinating to think about the, the possibilities there, especially within a culture where you have that strong democratic citizenry with that education. But wouldn't you know what you I mean? mean? If the public was funding it, wouldn't you be beholden to the government and their ideals? Because they're not going to allow you to essentially do anything you want. So that's an interesting question. Because, like, how do you fund something so that it can do its work without thinking about profit? Well, you, without having it beholden to the source of that income? I really like the Patreon model for stuff like that. Crowd, like crowdfunding. Crowdsourcing? Absolutely. Crowdsourcing Have you heard of Patreon? Yeah, no, I, I subscribe yeah. to a couple of things. Like okay. Democracy at Work. I, I pay I them know, five bucks a month. Yeah, I really <laughs> like that model for that. I don't think it scales. Well, know, what about like, um, I don't know. I just, I think that's a good model if there's an enough support there but i like the idea of it being something that's like an embedded right as opposed to something that's only available if we can crowdsource it so i mean what about something that's like you know because i mean we have a constitutional right to a free a free press right but the problem is when usually when the government is involved that's what the definition of it not being a free press that's true although i would say you know publicly funded media like you know pbs i think is better than corporate media Largely, so it's, yeah. it's not like corporate really media news, is free like, media. The reason PBS is good is because they don't cover news. They it's just, just like on informational education. education. Yeah. yeah, it's well, tough. This is a tough one, but we need a free democratic media. Okay. If there's if there's a um, so I think one of the biggest problems with that, uh, like having a, a government funded media like outlet, is the setup. Because if you were to set it up in such a way that like they're uh, their funding could not be cut or something like that. Like, it was really hard to manipulate. Yeah, like constitutional. Have, kind of like how judges are set up to try mm -hmm. to avoid any influence from government, uh, you know, interests, yeah. right? So some way that we can sort of kind of, like, Put try to wall them line, off yeah. from any sort of government backlash from something they might say. Mm -hmm. it, it does, I, I like the idea because right now, yeah. what the we have... The funding would have to be somehow on stone. mandatory yeah. you could have a discretion. Exactly, because the fact that we have media beholden to profits right now is one of the things that allows it to run away with models of you know in inflammatory news yeah. and sensationalistic mm -hmm. news and, well, and if you had a, a company that wasn't worried about making more money it was just trying like you know hopefully trying to yeah. just present just run news. on their principles yeah. and their you know and the people who get into it yeah. would just be like i'm making enough money to make a living but the reason i'm doing this is because i'm a patriotic democratic citizen. hopefully that would be what would happen exactly right. and that you know the, the interesting thing is right like if you set this up with an idea that you're trying to remove negative incentives you could also uh, like unintentionally remove positive ones too so like it would be it'd be interesting to see what would actually happen and what you know what the incentives of the people that went there could be and how you could try to set it up in a way that was somehow trying to be more objective yeah. or trying to be more fair to everyone yeah. but i think that it definitely has some potential and, and a lot more potential would be less corrupt than yeah. what we have now well, it's just something problem totally though with corruption when you don't have a profit incentive is then it becomes an incentive for corrupt people to seek that out because like if i wanted to like uh, instill a communism or fascism in the population. Right. The best thing for me to do is to go work for the government. Oh, and disseminate it from a place up. of safety. Exactly, yeah. That's how I felt like when the first thing that came to mind when we were talking about it was like for like the universities because you would think that, you know, like if we think of Alexandria as like the first like university, really university that pops into my mind, I'm like, okay, well, everyone who taught there were just like the head people were philosophers you know but now it lets you think about that now and it's like who are the head people at a university yeah 
So essentially, business majors. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and that's because, and in my head, it's like what supplanted the truth was profit. So, so like, so as long as there, the other idea for universal basic income, I think that is like a really cool idea that infuses into like just like people's worldview is that we should focus on maybe like materialistic um, resources and like the organization of materialistic resources as something that is kind of like a minimum that just needs that needs to happen and then the meritocratic kind of ideas can be in a way of like more artistic things more like creative things so if you if we go to the news thing it's like if you get a certain amount of money everyone gets a certain amount of or i guess every news outlet gets like a certain amount of money then literally what is you you worry okay well what's the point in writing good news and it's because people will listen to you more you might not get so, paid but like do we well, and really now you're benefiting all? society exactly forming the pocket but do you see how that has nothing to do with profit no. Yeah, I mean, the real role issue, though, of like, whether or not people will watch it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's if it's not just like, you know, catchy entertainment bullshit. Right. Yeah. Hopefully, you've engendered the kind of culture at that point. Yeah. I feel like you go back to the school system. Yeah. You it's all the school system always has to yeah. come part of this. Um, this is just like, I, I just kind of threw that out there because it's a fun thought exercise to think about where you could apply the democratic model to different businesses that yeah. I think would improve them. One, Drew, is imagine publicly funded universities democratically run by their professors or if you want to get even more radical with some participation even by the students mm -hmm. like what would that look like in terms of you know that kind of vibrant organic educational you know institution i mean it's fascinating to think about totally. possibilities i think that does get into i think that's actually a really good place of like getting into why it's important to have the meritocracy though i agree but i i also think you should i i don't believe that meritocracy and democracy are not compatible fair because when i see look at ancient athens yes. they appoint people to positions of power and follow those people's lead and a lot of times it's the best and brightest a lot of times it's people who have come out from the citizenry you know, to show their quality and to convince the people. This has a dark side, too, because demagogues and tyrants are also very good at convincing real. the people, especially during times I of mean, stress or war or crisis. So there's that problem as well. I think but it, at least when you contain it to businesses, yeah. if they kind of, like, go crazy and collapse, it's contained, you know? Well, at least more than goes, if you did it with a government. <laughs> I think it goes, like, it, like, actually a really good example of it is, like, a funny one that just came to mind, but in Game of Thrones with Blackfish. You know, Blackfish does his best to, like, he's like, no, I'm not going to let you in. I'm not going to let the Lannisters in. You can take this fucking castle if you want to. And then you have the dude who was like, okay, Boy, well... Alert, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. But yeah, you have the, the nephew that goes in and is like, I'm going to, you know, usurp you. I will. Using the same power, which would for be, sure. like, a de de like, for me in my head, would be the democratic power if you have someone... See, but I, I would argue, side. though, that that's neither democratic nor meritocratic. Like, no, Blackfish would be meritocratic in that he was... He had the best ideas, he was the best qualified, he was the real soldier, right? right? Yeah. And Edmund? Edmund? Tolly? He obviously was lesser on the meritocratic scale, but you're within a, like, you know, a feudalistic system. Mm -hmm. So the soldiers are just simply acting in response to the hierarchy. 
Right. Oh, he's the Lord. I have to listen to him, even though you have the better idea. Mm-hmm. That's not democracy. That's not a democratic thing. He's going, no, but he's our Lord. That's yeah. what the guy said. It's true. He's our Lord. Oh, yeah, that captain did say So it's an appeal to hierarchy, yeah. not to democracy. Yeah. It's not like That's the people right. got together. Who do you think we should listen to? Let's vote. Let's debate. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, like, also, that is an interesting idea, though. Like, what if they had gotten together and debated it? Like, is right. that really the better idea I don't to know. let the Lannisters in or not? Because, I mean... I don't remember the exact... I would have rather seen that than simply... Right. I mean, certainly. <laughs> the, only, the only thing that I wanted to, like, point I mean, At least it's on them what they suffer. Was, okay, but I also don't think that that tension is completely devoid of dem- democracy. Because that's also, like, a definitely, like, mob rule kind of idea. Like, I get that you're, right now, you're, heart, you're like, focusing on the fact that there was a hierarchy right. that was in right. place. But that's, like, it's still an example of someone who did have power. Everyone was listening to him because he was, he was the Blackfish. And, yeah, he wasn't the Lord, but he was the Blackfish. And then, at least there was some tension that came across with, So like, they had to make a decision. Exactly. I, I would argue, though, it would only become democratic at the point where they exert their free will over that situation and discuss it and come up with their own collective consensus. Because right. they, didn't, they didn't question it individually or as a group. They simply kind of had like a computational dispute. Oh, who is superior on this hierarchical program that I'm following? Well, I think that's where the tension and came up. Also, just that one guy, and then he was essentially the, yeah. the real leader yeah. because he like the but he I had the authority over all of the men. I get that there is the democracy. if there was any democracy, it was like that much. But you know, but what I'm saying is, I don't want to get a, I don't want to get away from the idea that there isn't going to be that power structure within democracy. I think it's very natural for some people I agree. to be listened to. A lot more than other people. Definitely. In that I agree, but if it's not institutionally embedded, yes, it's going to be a lot less. Right, which is why I was using it as an example, not not to be like yeah. literal, but like as a good example of what might occur yeah. when it when it happens. And I think the more you democratically empower people, you know, the less um, the less they're prone to be influenced by that kind of appeal to authority. You know. I don't necessarily want to say that. I would say that that it's it's a much about um trying to like become better, whatever whatever that tension is to like progress. That usually keeps people awake because if they get into a place of like everyone is like we're pretty great, it's like they're like ah let's try that idea, let's try that idea. Why not that idea? You know because they they are so stable that they're like I can try anything. Really, I feel uh, like a lot of times it actually works the other way, where when you're really stable, you don't you're try not, anything. You're not trying anything because yeah. you're happy with what's going on. No, no, no that's it's why when you're unstable in cycles of very. Well, yeah, you and, aren't and, trying anything. Like I wasn't saying that the people who were like, "Yeah, let's try that." That's that they're saying that because they're not coming up with anything. So someone else comes in and says, "I have a great idea, guys. This can be like wonderful." But you've been stable for so long that you're not critical and you're not critically thinking. Anymore. I agree. It could and become so less. Like, oh yeah, that guy. Why not? I well, I actually think they'd be more likely to do that in a time of stress or crisis. Certainly, if we look at history, that's what we see. Yeah, here. when I look, yeah, looking at history, it's it's democracies or institutions that have democratic aspects to them always are more active in times of stress and least active in times of stability. 
I mean, I think that it's stable. I like. I think the one thing is that it's usually losing stability, right? Like that's the stress comes from losing stability. Yeah. So that's mm -hmm. that's the place. So yeah, systemic if, like outside pressures. So pressure. Yeah. So uh, in and I'm, I'm, there could be you know there could be a point at which you reach a certain level of stability where you just don't change anything, right? But that would also probably not be the best. Like I don't know. Like a lot well, of people would argue really that wouldn't stay the same over time, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you're saying, the environment yeah. can change the exactly. Way I, I think the people are. Dependent. I think that a democratic culture is more likely to make sober decisions during a time that's stable. Maybe someone can still come in and say, "Hey, I have this idea. We should do this new thing." But people are going to be more skeptical if things are good right now. For sure. You know what I mean? I agree. Whereas if it's crazy, people in tandem with said craziness become yeah. more open to crazy shit. True, but we're it's also... It's like right now, Trump can only happen because there's a huge portion of the population that's that's in a state of stress or despair of some kind. I just want to, like, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to get across is that when you're stable, it's more difficult. Like, you might have a good idea of what it is that had created that stability, but it's not always apparent. And so it's that same idea that you get when, let's just, like, it, like and one thing would be, like, Plato's Cave with, right. is a great example of this, where they're so, like, stuck in the way that they're thinking that this guy is comes in and it's like, hey, guys, we promised that, like, I went and checked out. There's, like, all this wonderful shit that you're not paying attention to. Come and get out. And they're like, no, yeah, we don't believe totally. you. So that's another, like, so I'm saying, yeah, there's... And I'm saying... They're more likely to say, okay, let's leave the cave if there's, like, an earthquake happening or something <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, if they're yeah. just cool, if they're good and there's meat on the fire and it's warm in the cave. I'm just saying, <laughs> like, like, fuck off, Socrates. But that's, <laughs> yeah. but that's a clear way. That's a, that's a clear way forward. That's a clear way forward, right. right? I'm just saying that, like, yeah. So, I guess the thing was, like, we some we lose our ability if we become stable. First, we become sensitized. That's one big thing that we were talking about, like the other night. Like, and I think that's kind of like we're we're showing that now, where it's like we're so worried about how all of these like different like political ideas will change us that we're like trying really hard not to do anything. Sure, you get the extreme people who will like who will vote for Trump and stuff like that who wanted like throw chaos but that's not because they thought they were stable they thought they were in a shit place and a clear yeah. way forward would be to elect trump yeah. well, especially i well, think that that mentality or that uh phenomenon is phenomenon is what kind of precipitates these these cycles of stability and then like crises yeah where people during times of stability or perceived stability are so resistant to change that they're right. unwilling to change with the environment and so they maintain this idea that they have that they think is working until it literally stops working. As yes, opposed to well, recognizing yeah. that it's not working as well as it used to and trying to make incremental changes. They're like, no, 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 it worked for a while. Let's just keep it the way it is. Like, maybe it'll get back to where, where it was. Right. And then something crashes and they're like, fuck, let's, uh, um, what about you? Can you do it? And they just like grab the nearest crazy dude and they're like, let's well. put him in charge and see, <laughs> and see what'll happen. No. That guy usually <laughs> says, him dice. no, guys, I have the idea yeah. i have this i was definitely yeah broad strokes well, there yeah. i think i think in terms of like our current political landscape mm -hmm. it's particularly troubling because when you factor in the unresponsiveness of our political institutions because they've been captured by corporate power people sense this I mean, people understand the government's bought and people understand the government's not working for them 
And the the worse that perception gets, combined with a worsening of people's material reality around them, they're they're gonna get more and more radical. Right. Because right, right. the system's not responding to them in like a, a slow way along with the rise of their stresses. It's yeah. not providing piecemeal reform totally. to ease their suffering. Exactly. And so they're going the pressure, you know, it's it's like you have something cooking on a pot and there's no air to get out. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> and so they're gonna throw crazy shit at you eventually. I mean yeah. Trump I think of Trump as, you know, a certain sect of the population faced with that reality that we all share. You know, and they just turned to the Molotov cocktail that they that was near them, and they're just throwing it out a system that's not responding to them because they don't know what else the fuck to do. I think like whatever really... is happening right now isn't working for me. So I really like that analogy for Trump. The yeah. Molotov cocktail. I yeah. feel like that's very fitting given what well, he's been doing. No kidding. And, and but I... if you're in a situation that you know is on a linear progression towards a lessening of your material circumstances, right. Your only option is to try to destroy that system. Totally. Yeah. No, 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 I would agree with that. We got about nine minutes left. So. Okay. But again, that gets to my idea that there is a clear way. They're not in a good. Like, okay, let's it's also say, not democratic because it's not responding to them. I think one of the underlying problems with the whole thing here too is that humans crave authority, and that's why a lot of even democratic yeah. systems tend towards authoritarianism yeah. because people. I mean, like, people like that us, we don't probably human crave nature. it as much as most people, right? Like, there's yeah. free thinkers that don't want authority, but a lot of people can't function yeah. without authority. They legitimately yeah. don't want, like, well, there are people who would hate to, my wife I would hate to work in a Democratic co-op. If you ask her to vote all the time, she'd just be like, no, and, I don't, and I don't I, care. I that's a really good point. <laughs> and I think that's made particularly <laughs> bad because, getting back to education and all that, I think we have a society in place meant to encourage that yeah. and, and to facilitate that because of how much of our interactions are within an authoritarian context. It's, it's like what we were talking about last night with how authoritarian education is, where, like, yeah. if there's a teacher up there that's saying yeah. a thing and somebody's like, hey, I'm not sure that thing's right, they're like, well, fuck you, I'm the teacher. Yeah. I know. See, like, <laughs> outside of, like, my wife is mostly educated outside of education, so, so mm -hmm. that doesn't even necessarily... Okay. Was she in a fundamentalist community? Yeah, she actually, we were in homeschool yeah, originally, but... <clears throat> Same with my girlfriend. Uh, yeah, it's it's dark. I'm sorry, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and well, I mean that same. It's just like moving it's, the authoritarian structure about, at home, though. You right? have to think about personality. Like, go, let's go back to like the big five and the way that just individual sure. personality differences have. Right, you have differences on the openness dimension. Yeah. People that are really high in openness don't want authoritarian structures. People really low in openness do. Yeah. That's a good point. You know? But I, I do think there's an environmental factor there. Yes. Whereas you know, That's if you have the whether you are raised in a fundamentalist community or you go to an authoritarian school system, that's going to create, you know, a predisposition in the population towards those traits. Whereas, you know, if you have, you know, a strong, open, democratic institutions and education system and all that, it's going to facilitate it more leaning in the other direction. Right. I just I think, think that because every time we've tried that, they lean towards authoritarian, that we're not addressing the fact that there is an implicit desire in humanity. I do think there is. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right as well. And that's definitely something what we should, you know, acknowledge. And, try and that's why. So we have to acknowledge it to stop it. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And I think even within this model, there's still some of that. Because you're still electing leaders, yeah. you know? At least they're accountable to you. But that's different than, like, the workers are getting together around a round table to vote on each decision every day, you know? They're, they're going, okay, we like what you're saying. Give it a shot. And if we don't like what happens, we'll put someone else there. So don't fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> 
It'd be interesting too to get into the, uh, I guess the power checks for that because like the president, I mean that's right. the basic idea of what we have now is right. that we elect somebody. But we got to the point yeah. where the system's so cohesive yeah. that we can't yeah. really do anything um, when somebody shitty gets elected. I haven't come to some firm decisions on that in terms of how I feel about checks within the system. Because I mean, like, what if what if the person you've elected management literally tries to infringe on the rights of democratic? Yeah. So I, I guess you just have to make it so the management just doesn't kind of like a constitutional system where like okay you can't take our democratic rights within the system even if you're exercising your power to do a bunch of other stuff yeah there's lots of tiny americas everywhere yeah <laughs> well i like the yeah. idea of the diversity I mean, of them too with that really because like be it makes honest. sense because we do have a big problem just the population growth the system worked yeah. better when there were way less people and like there were more local like local governments were tighter yeah and everything you know the idea that states rights and that government was more local and that's yeah, for sure too. yeah now it's just 330 million people let's go like, <laughs> and to be honest you, you also get i mean we can think of it even like graphically because I think, like, it's a it's a really cool way, but it's, like, if you just, like, if you have a bunch of huge-ass circles, like, let's say all of, like, the mainland of the United States had six circles of, like, kind of, like, political orientation, and it's, like, you have, like, super democratic people on the west side and super, <laughs> you know, conservative people on, on the right side, it's, like, even if you try to get, like, a, you know, like, a middle color of white, like, that's basically all you get. You get, like, you know, that polarization where you have, like, a lot of blue on this side, a lot of red on this side, and kind of like a neutral here. Yeah. But if you separate those into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller circles, you can get a better gradation and more interaction that way of like, oh, okay, maybe like there's more, it's, it can become more dynamic, I guess, is that, is that idea. There's little, there's smaller data points. Also, I would also like to point out that um, there's a lot of uniformity in terms of the way our businesses and structure in the current economy. Like, you know, people go into management and they reference kind of the idea of how it's done, which is kind of like well hammered out now. I, I would be so excited to see the kinds of experimentation and diversification of, you know, business structures if you're giving so, workers a management in business, stuff, they do have a lot. I mean, you can go into different models and stuff with that. Yeah, I mean, there are different management philosophies. That, I mean, there's definitely a more. So we're actually kind of in the middle of trying to transition from a more old school philosophy to a new school. And good. Yeah, like if you go to a lot of like companies that have been around for longer, that are like, you know, they're set in their ways. Like yeah. not Google. Like Google's got the like newer philosophy, right. like a more democratic system. Like it's less, you know, uh, pyramid shaped. There's a lot. Flatter based people aren't like in such clearly defined roles as to where the more like tight hierarchy yeah. is like considered the like old school man. Yeah. Side. So, so it's getting better. Yeah, most most people like if you go to business school will advocate moving away from that. That's sort of seen yeah. as like the you know old school like business parts are still yeah. Keep that away. Right. And and this is definitely part of my own hopes and idealism. But I mean, I I would hope to see manifesting kind of. A transition from capitalism to democratic businesses taking place slowly, kind of like capitalism emerging from feudalism. Mm -hmm. You know, because I'm studying that a lot right now. It's like the whole Enlightenment and how slow and just varied that process was right, right. until you know some of the kings got sold on it, and then they made it happen really quickly. Yeah, that happens with like everything, just like Christianity, yeah. and the Roman Empire, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Constantine and all that. Yeah. It's kind of that idea, I, I forget what, like, the best example of it is, but, like, when it flips, you It's know? pretty like, funny, because the most nah, capitalist... The tipping point. Yeah, the tipping, tipping point. point, sure. 
The most capitalist-friendly monarch in Enlightenment Europe was Louis, was the French king. He had an advisor that was, like, really into capitalism and Adam, Adam, Adam Smith. Yeah, Adam Smith and all that. And so they start pushing all this stuff to, like, you know, government stop, you know, setting the price of bread and all this different stuff. And it would lead to the kind of social pressures that would lead to the French Revolution, which, ironically, I mean, the goal succeeded. Capitalism emerged out of the French Revolution and replaced the royalty with the, you know, the, the business class. So it was, it was a trip. It's a trip. Lost his head. <laughs> we should talk more about the French Revolution and other times in history next time. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm still got like, a lot to learn on that. I like looking through that lens and trying. We can to talk with authority on ancient Greece. Everything else, there's lots to learn For still. Sure. Yeah, you guys should talk about especially like big transitional periods. Of that's time. why I'm so interested in that right now. That's yeah. my. That's my. The Industrial Revolution is another one that I'm starting to, but right now I'm focused on Enlightenment. Excellent. That was good, though. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming by, Chris. That was awesome. Yeah, that was fun. That was good. Good debates. Yeah. Let's cut this shit out, so. That was your good timing. I mean, Benjamin Franklin was an alien. Benjamin. Yeah, definitely an alien. Benjamin. I love Benjamin Franklin. Those are facts.